everybody it's your boy jordan and this is desmond and welcome to episode 161 of two black nerds that's right it's that time once again for us to bring you our opinions and hot takes on all things fandom pop culture and entertainment as always you can find two black nerds wherever you get your podcasts please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a friendly rating and comment to show your support and of course join in on the conversation each and every week by following us on twitter instagram and tiktok at two black nerds we appreciate that love y'all and let's not forget to mention we have brand new merchandise that's available now at two blacknerds.com go check out our two black nerds forever collection inspired by black panther wakanda forever we got t-shirts crew neck city stickers mugs and tote bags so go ahead and place those orders right now on today's show we'll be reviewing glass onion ryan johnson's sequel to his 2019 hit mystery film knives out also we'll be discussing a bunch of thanksgiving film releases including bones and all strange world and devotion plus we'll do a deep dive on the final three episodes of the star wars original series and or but before we get to any and all of that we're kicking off this week's podcast with a review of the brand new marvel studios special presentation the guardians of the galaxy holiday special I just saw on the calendar that right now on Earth, it's almost Christmas time. We don't have time for trivialities like Christmas. But Peter's so sad about Gamora being gone. Maybe if we go to Earth for a really wonderful Christmas gift, it would make him happy. Something special he will never forget. What about someone special? We're looking for the legendary Kevin Bacon. We're looking for the legendary Kevin Bacon. I just said that, Drax. Your voice is small and mousy. I think maybe he didn't hear you. Ah! You're coming with us as a Christmas present. Now, this new special is written and directed by James Gunn, and it's starring Chris Pratt, Dave Bautista, Karen Gillan, Palm Clementiev, Vin Diesel, Bradley Cooper, Sean Gunn, Michael Rooker, Kevin Bacon, and Maria Bakalova. Now, the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special is now the second Marvel Studios presentation, special presentation that we've gotten this year. But according to president of Marvel Studios, Kevin Feige, this was the first project conceived by Marvel Studios for Disney+. Plus. So when they were thinking about all of the content that they were going to develop for Disney Plus upon its launch in 2019. This was actually the first idea that was pitched, and it was pitched by none other than James Gunn, who we know directed the first two Guardians films. And so he actually pitched this back during the development of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, mm-hmm. apparently wrote a script for it in three days and turned it in. And so they've just been <laughs> kind of sitting on this idea for a few years. And over the production period of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which we know is going to come out in about five months here, they decided 
decided to film this simultaneously alongside that feature film. And we finally got a chance to take a look at it. Now, we will do some spoilers because there's actually quite a few things to talk about from this holiday special. But before we do that, we'll give our general high-level thoughts about what we thought about this brand new special presentation from Marvel. So with all of that out the way, I will pass it over to you. What were your big picture thoughts about this new holiday special? James Gunn, James Gunn, James Gunn, man, uh, just always understands what he's doing, um, especially with the characters in, of Guardians of the Galaxy. I, I think it makes sense. There, there's so much of this that makes sense that exists after you watch this Guardians holiday special. And after after you see it, you go, wow, I'm surprised. Like it, it felt so like canon, which it is, right? It felt so canon, though, that it's like, I'm surprised it wasn't like part of the movie <laughs> kind of canon uh, uh, after you watch all of it because the the premise it only makes sense I think that 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 things like this um, would happen in this universe people who don't know about Christmas in the galaxy they would only know from word of mouth by the one person who was from Terra or Earth and Peter Quill and that's what the story follows it really does follow rumors in word of mouth in order to create Christmas in a, in a galaxy um shoot for lack of a better term far far away uh which this does have a little bit of feels of the of the star wars holiday special even no matter how people feel about that holiday special but it's it's it there's so much fun to be had and what's even crazy about this special is that it's even shorter than world of by night like 10 minutes shorter something like that 11 minutes shorter something like that which is crazy because even that um um was short but that felt good too and, and here we are i think again with another special presentation that just feels good it feels like it is full of holiday cheer while still giving us that that dna that exists within the guardians of the galaxy cast man i had a tremendous time i i laughed a ton I love how we follow the characters we kind of follow the least in Drax and Mantis for the most part. I love that about it because, I don't know, there's always been part of me that's like, dang, I wish you had a little more Mantis. Especially after me and you, we played uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy video game. And Mantis was actually a huge part of that. She talked a lot in that game. We, ne we don't necessarily get that much Mantis in the movies, at least not yet. Maybe Guardians Volume 3 is a little different. But here we are in, in here and spending some time with, with characters we haven't got to. And it, it was really, I think, rewarding for people who have been with this crew for, for a decent amount of time. Um, man, what else to add? I, I'll just say I'm happy this exists. Um, so far, I'm having a good time with what... Uh, uh, they're bringing with these special presentations. I'm really proud of what they're doing. Um, and in in James Gunn with another Guardians holiday special feels like a treat, especially knowing as somebody who is probably transferring to mainly, you know, his DC job now. Somebody who is telling us that Guardians Three is the last Guardians. It just felt good to get another project out of there that we can, I think, cherish. And that I feel like I can watch every year at Christmas time now. Like that's literally it's it's short enough to me for me to be like. I got to throw in this Guardian special next year. You know what I'm saying? Like it really, it, it really is one of those. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy they did this. Uh, I had a good time with it. I can't wait to talk spoilers because there's some funny stuff in here. But man, I enjoyed myself. Listen, James Gunn has had an absolutely stellar year. We actually started off the top of the year talking about Peacemaker, which is a series that he wrote and directed and conceived during the production of the Suicide Squad when he was over on the DC side of things a couple of years ago. That is an amazing and phenomenal series. Loved Peacemaker. As we have already mentioned here, he was just named president and co-CEO 
of the newly iterated DC Studios. He is the man in charge for the next at least four years Mm -hmm. of what the grand vision for DC is going to be in terms of connecting their films with their TV, with now apparently their video games. So he is going to be conceiving a really massive plan to make DC a little bit more competitive in terms of their output when it relates to live action films, when it relates to TV series. And so he's been absolutely busy, but of course where a lot of his fandom in terms of where most people know him from, it started with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Obviously, he's made movies before that, which you should absolutely check out if you haven't, but Guardians made him a household name. And so it's actually quite surprising when I thought about this in in terms of just watching this special and thinking about the past few years of James Gunn, in that this is the first time he's had control, complete control of these characters at least, since Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 all the way back in 2017. Of course, the Guardians have appeared in multiple Marvel Studios films, such as Infinity War and Endgame, and then earlier this year, Thor Love and Thunder. But I remember, as we were reviewing Thor Love and Thunder, I had made note that I kind of missed the writing of James Gunn with these characters. They were fine. They did okay. But I think James Gunn brings a totally different spin to this group, this motley crew, and this dysfunctional family, so to say, in in a way that not really any other filmmakers can because he's really Mm -hmm. attached to them and kind of conceived these new iterations of him. And so to have him back in the director's chair for this holiday special is a nice treat to lead us into what we can possibly see out of Guardians 3 next spring. This was absolutely phenomenal, and it really knocked my socks off in a way that I didn't anticipate. I was coming into this thinking, like, yeah, it should be fine, and James Gunn, he's just a supremely talented filmmaker. But for some reason, a lot of his stuff, especially lately, it seems to sneak up on me. Even going into Peacemaker, I'm thinking, like, oh, it's mm-hmm. probably going to be okay. And then you watch it, and you're <laughs> like, wait a second, this is so much better than I thought it would. And I just didn't have as high expectations for this because it is so short. It's only about 45 minutes. And so I was just wondering, well, how much can you really do in 45 minutes in this one-off sort of format? But James Gunn, I mean, he wastes no single second. The man knows how to maximize the time that he's given, and he took advantage of everything that was laid before him and not only giving us something that was fun, something that was heartfelt and emotional, but also something that can technically advance the story forward for his final Guardians film next spring in, in, in a numerous amount of ways. And I'm just really impressed at how much he was able to cram into 45 minutes, and it never really even felt like that. It felt like that there could have been more, mm-hmm. but the pacing was just incredible, and so I never even felt like it was dragging because he stuffed so much stuff into it, so many so many well-earned moments, so many good moments of character development for all of these characters that, we, that we've grown to love over the past decade or so. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to see how proficient he is, how talented he is, and how connected with these characters he really is because he knows them better than anybody, and so when you watch the special... I dare you to not like it because there are so many things that you can just come across and see that'll make your heart melt. And even if you're not a fan of Christmas specials or if you're not a fan of the holidays or not a fan of Christmas films, whatever the case may be, I bet that this is going to win you over. Because if you like these characters at all, if you like where they've been and their journeys over the past 10 years at all, there's no reason that you wouldn't like this. And again, this is a great primer for what we'll probably see in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. With that said, we do want to talk about some details because there's some some really interesting nuggets that were dropped in this special. So if you haven't seen it just yet, go watch it and come back. But it's been out on Disney Plus for almost a week now, so I think it's fair game to pretty much talk about. One of the most notable things for me is kind of the way that it starts off. It was a really odd Mm -hmm. choice to start this off with animation. Obviously, we know all of the MCU up until this point, with the exception of What If, has been live action. So this animated sort of throwback, this flashback to showcase Michael Rooker as Yondu, who we know passed away 
in Guardians Volume 2 definitely kind of threw me off my equilibrium a little bit. I didn't expect it, but Mm -hmm. it makes a ton of sense because James Gunn is pulling inspiration from the rotoscope animation style of the 70s that Ralph Bosky made so famous in the Lord of the Rings film, that animated film from the 70s, which it reminded me of. I remember watching that in middle school and I was thinking like, this feels weird. Why is it moving like that? Why is the animation drawn like that? Well, they film this stuff in live action and then actually trace over it. Every single frame, they trace over it with the animation. So that's why the motion looks a little bit weird. But what did you think about sort of that throwback style to tell the story of how Yondu apparently and quote unquote ruined Christmas for Peter Quill? It felt Christmas-like to me. I actually really liked that they started it off like that because I feel like there's there are you know even other films um, on top of that where they start with a little animation. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas movies ever is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Me and my mom watch it every year. Literally the beginning of that is music playing and it's an animation of like Santa Claus coming and, and I don't know it's just something about some of these movies starting off as animated that that gets me. I don't know, feeling some kind of holiday cheer. It feels it feels different from the rest of the film. It, it it primes the movie. And so I thought it was a really cool choice. It caught me off guard completely though. I'm with you. I was like, oh, is this how we're starting off? Like how do we <laughs> how do we get into this and how do we get out of this? But and at the same time, thinking about how Yandu as a character is past, it kind of felt almost right that the flashback was animated and how the rest of it wasn't. I was like, hmm, I kind of like this. Like, I really like kind of this idea of the presence not being with us, him being animated in that time or the flashback just being animated in that time, Um, which, again, we do call back to later on down the line, which is animated again when they do another flashback. And I was like, okay, this is cool. I like, I I, kind of like this idea. So I was all for it, man. It felt like something, again, at first it's jarring, but when I sat with it a little bit, I was like, you know what, this feels right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially considering that it does book in the episode. We start with it and we pretty much end with it. And it only further establishes how close Peter Quill and Yondu actually were, Mm -hmm. which we didn't always get a sense of that in the first Guardians film. You can tell that there was a relationship there and Yondu essentially kind of tortured Peter in his his youth, you know, growing up and made him into the man that he is and Mm -hmm. put him through a lot of things. But you can have you have to imagine that because of Peter's emotions at the end, end of Guardians 2 in, in losing Yondu, that there had to be some love there. And mm. I think that this was a great way to showcase that, as you said, for a character that did die. This was a really effective way, I think, to actually go back to the past, do a little bit of a flashback. We don't get Michael Rooker completely, but we get mm-hmm. the spirit of him, obviously, and what they're doing here. But I thought it was a, a really brilliant choice in terms of just setting the tone and obviously giving us the story that they were trying to tell with this. But another kind of bigger overall thing, I think, with this animated special or this holiday special, I'm already confusing things, but this holiday special is the fact that according to James Gunn, he really kind of used this as an opportunity to Trojan horse a lot of story elements into Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 mm-hmm. that he wouldn't necessarily have to mention once we get that movie he can sort of take these 45 minutes throw in a few nuggets that we can just already sort of become accustomed to so that by the time we get to that movie we've already known what he showcased us here there's several things they got a new ship it's called the bowie they finally gave us cosmo in live action which we knew cosmo was going to be introduced here voiced by maria bakalova cosmo has appeared in a couple of things before but this is really kind of the first time we're seeing Cosmo a part of the Guardians crew proper. Mm-hmm. Also, just the fact that they purchased Nowhere from the Collector, Crazy. which is like the biggest thing that they dropped here. I had to actually go back and I said, wait a second, did I hear that properly yeah. when Nebula was- said that? Mm-hmm. But it makes a lot of sense that they've taken the money that they've earned from all of the missions over the years because they are mercenaries at the end of the day. And they've used that money to buy 
nowhere from the collector, which confirms that he is d- indeed alive. He did yep. survive the events of Infinity War and Endgame. But they now have this new home base, which, again, by the time we get to Guardians Volume 3, all of these chess pieces are now set in play. I mean, if you didn't watch this and then you just come into Guardians 3, I'm sure there's going to be stuff that's probably repeated to mm-hmm. give you the information that you need. But essentially, we've already kind of set the table for where the Guardians are in this current day and time. What did you think about just the way that he used this as a way to just sort of set up a movie that's going to come in a few months here? You know, we I like that we like, we've been constantly talking about what everything moves out, the way everything moves outside of movie MCU, I think. You know, like, what does this TV show mean? What does that TV show mean? What's What If got going on? What If have anything to do with anything? What is werewolf by night we love that but you know are we going to see those characters ever again you know we always have these questions and i like really by the middle of this or just while watching it we know it's canon and we know whatever happens here is for real and there's something about that that just means a little bit more than some of the stuff we've been watching recently in in phase four really um in in and so i i really like that about that here man i love that there's also like a, a lot of cool things that were introduced here. It wasn't like the smaller stuff, you know, you kind of iterated towards, but it's like big stuff. Like Guardians owning nowhere is like, they have a planet, y'all. A celestial head <laughs> is now in the ownership of Guardians of the Galaxy. I think that's crazy. I think that people don't, Cosmo's the cutest thing in the world. We finally get, got <laughs> Cosmo, you know what I'm saying? It's like, now we're going to, people are going to watch it and be like, oh, I know who that is. You know, I've seen that during the Christmas special. You know, they're going to do the Leonardo point. Like, I love that um, about all of this. I love that they, we can do nods that actually mean something and that, that's going to go somewhere. It also, I, I always, I'm a huge proponent of this because it just leads to more things that can happen in the next movie. Imagine the big crux of this movie uh, or of, of this special. We had to spend time doing it in the movie. And then, now we don't have to do that. And there's something about that that means something you know it it, it 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 works out for the audience it works out for james gunn writing it It works out for i think all parties involved because this is really more content faster in a lot of ways and what this special does it, it you said it, it lays out the groundwork to speed up volume three a little bit they may hit at it but they might not spend too much time on it you know what i'm saying I'm like, oh, here's cosmo that's it you know what I'm that's it that's the end of the conversation um you would have seen groot's form here that's it <laughs> you've seen his form in the special you don't gotta question it when you see it in volume three so i just think uh it's it's beneficial for all parties and and i really appreciate stuff like that yeah i think that's really a reason why this is so successful is how much it's able to achieve not only can it be this fun holiday christmas special that we get not only is there a central storyline, but it's also setting up a movie that we're going to get tied directly into that stuff, while also spotlighting, as you noted earlier, characters that we just don't get a ton of time to spend with who haven't been placed at the forefront maybe as much as we would have liked to see. And this this represents, you know, an interesting dichotomy between the two specials that we've gotten this year. The one earlier, Werewolf by Night, is very much a standalone story, mm. very much disconnected from the rest of the MCU. I mean, there, there, there's nothing there that you can really pull from that says like, oh yeah, that might tie into that. Right. It doesn't really exist. Whereas mm-hmm. this one is now the first special in which we see that there is tissue, connective tissue that exists between other properties all throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so it just goes to show what they can actually achieve with this new format, this new method of storytelling on Disney+. Plus. So it's really impressive. But speaking of characters that don't get a lot of time to shine, this whole special really focuses on Drax and Mantis. It's really their story, which I'm 
very, very pleased to see because Drax, ever since the first movie, has been kind of given a raw deal, I think. I think once he really blew up, once Dave Bautista showed the world how charismatic he can truly be and how talented he really is as an actor, mm-hmm. it kind of almost became a little bit of a curse because he became a bit of a doofus in the, in the later films. Mm-hmm. Just kind of did ridiculous stuff, said jokes that sometimes would land, but not all the time, but didn't really have much of a story purpose as much as I think we would have liked to see, especially after that first movie. Mantis, who was introduced in the second movie, of course, had a large, large role in that film with her relationship to Ego. But after that, also another just character that stands on the side, says some silly things, and then, you know, she's just kind of on her way. Now, again, with James Gunn back in the director's chair, he's using this opportunity to say, well, wait a second, there's a lot to these two. And they also have a really, really interesting relationship with each other, Mm -hmm. which was started in volume two, and now we're seeing it really flourish here. And then they just go on this completely chaotic mission where they are just absolute anarchists in the streets of LA, which was such a joy to see because these two were fucking crazy. But that's why (laughs) we love them so much. What did you think about just the pairing of Drax and Mantis once again and the fact that we got so much time to spend with them and see their characters develop? And of course, learning the real big bombshell and the fact that Mantis is Peter Quill's sister. Man, it is. I love this. We've been talking about like a couple of like fish out of water, I think, kind of stories. And to see these two out of everybody be the ones to go to Earth, someplace they've never been, I think was just so entertaining how they could walk uh, uh, the, the Hollywood Walk of Fame and and see the stars and they see a bunch of random Avengers and be like, they're such literal people. Of course, Mantis would think that's actually Steve Rogers. You know what I'm saying? Of course, Drax would beat up this robot because a robot killed his cousin. Like, of course, things like this will happen because this is just the kind of characters that they are. So it, it just really... I think was a good time um, um, with them. I, I feel like I, it's been a while since I've gotten like alien Christmas kind of movies. You know what I'm saying? It, it really, Christmas movies have been pretty straightforward recently, or way more serious at least than than what we get here. And we we had a a, a chance to have a good time with these two. Really, uh, man, 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 man. Talk about some character development real fast. <laughs> uh, it's 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 crazy seeing. I think Mantis. This whole movie or this whole special is her going on a journey just for a brother that doesn't even know who, you know what I'm saying? Like she's his sister. And and, and it's really, yeah, I don't know. I think that's just really sweet, I guess, at the <laughs> at the end of it all. It is like absolutely when you think about it, it's like, dang, James Gunn, like that's a crazy concept that I wouldn't have thought. And of course, these are two people who would not find stealing a human being <laughs> to be a bad thing, but they do. Um, and I have to add, Kevin Bacon was having a tremendous time the, the, the entire time. You could tell he was having a good time. But I just like how how everything about this made sense, like that they were the characters to do it, that they were uh, uh, the way they interacted with Hollywood and California. Like They were the ones that, that did that. How, like you said, their, their chemistry with each other, she... He literally stopped her mid-sentence to throw her over the fence before she stopped. That was like the funniest part to me, bro. She's like, hey, by the way, can you throw me over? And she's already over the fence being tossed. Like, I thought that was so funny, bro. But it makes sense um, for, for who they are and what they were they were going through. Um, another funny thing I, I just like was that damn candy cane. Is this like a person to you? <laughs> I was like, what? No, it's not a... Okay, it's not a man, whatever y'all think this is. But I, it, I, I just had a good time with it. Um, and I can tell that James Gunn, as he always has, just has a knack 
for understanding the characters that he's directing, understanding the characters that he's writing, because he can take a story like this and say, no, this makes sense somehow. Two aliens out of nowhere are trying to put on Christmas for their homie on a planet they've never been to. It's like, what? Like, how do we get there? But James Gunn always finds a way to do it, and he always finds a way to do it well. So I, I really like all of this. Um, I really like us finding out about Mantis in, in Star-Lord being siblings. I think that's really cool. Um and, and yeah, man, I I just thought it was it was a good job, and I'm I'm glad that these are the two that he picked. I really love the moment when they are in front of the TCL Chinese Theater. They're taking pictures um, unwillingly. People just come up to them and they start taking selfies. It's excellent timing that this happened. But that one lady like takes oh, yeah. that selfie and she's like, "Oh yeah, I got a photo with the God of War." And I'm just like, "Wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> what what's happening right now? We're gonna talk about God of War later. That game's out and." He does absolutely he does. Drax looks like fucking Kratos like through and through. So it was a hilarious line. But yeah, they they just have so much fun. Like you said, fish out of water. They are walking the streets of L.A. They go into a bar and run into all these strangers. They're looking for Kevin Bacon. And people are like, why, why would I know where Kevin Bacon is? Like he is <laughs> a huge celebrity. Who's going to know where he is at any given moment? And there's just so many like small things that happen again that just make it make it a really fun experience and just like a fun time to spend with these two characters who are absolutely literal and they're just also low-key dangerous because they they really don't have a sense of their strength and how much damage mm -hmm. they actually inflict on people when they run into the cops after they actually get a hold of kevin bacon i mean they're flipping police cars <laughs> they're doing all sorts of wild shit hopping over fences you know in this really affluent neighborhood like it just looks it looks as crazy as it would sound, but you just kind of expect that sense of anarchy mm -hmm. that you would get out of these two. And I also love the fact that like we can even see Mantis like showcase more of her powers. Like when she's in Kevin Bacon's house, she's hopping alongside the walls like, like a praying Mantis would. And I was like, oh, we haven't seen that before. Mm -hmm. But this was another great way to just show like, yeah, they're not normal people. These are not <laughs> these are not humans. They're very strong. They're very fast. They can they can <laughs> leap leap great distances. They're actually pretty dangerous if you if you come across them at the wrong time. So all of that stuff was was really really fun. Another quick fun thing because James Gunn doesn't really he doesn't care about any of this stuff. Like that moment when they're outside of the club, super hungover, and that 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 person out of the out of the out of the shop comes and gives them the map to show where all the celebrities live oh yeah and you get the photos of john cena and margot robbie mm -hmm. on the map list i just thought that that was hilarious since they were in the suicide squad but i guess now like john cena and margot robbie they exist in the mcu so they probably can't be cast in any future roles because they're like <laughs> actual celebrities now i don't know but he doesn't care about any of that stuff it's, it's always great to see james gunn you know poke fun at, at, at his previous projects um we should talk about kevin bacon because a lot of it is centered around him of course Kevin Bacon, I mean, not only is the guy a legendary actor, supremely famous, mm -hmm. but he's been name dropped in so many Guardians projects before <laughs> this. In the first movie, in fact, it, it, he, he's a huge inspiration to Peter Quill because Peter Quill idolizes the movie Footloose. He thinks it's the greatest movie ever made, and he actually replicated the dance off in that movie, which saved the town mm -hmm. by dancing. Mm -hmm. And he replicated that at the end of Guardians 1 to save the universe by dancing and, and overcoming um, overcoming, you know, the forces of evil in that film. But now they've actually figured out a way to bring in the real actor, Kevin Bacon and have him play himself in the special, which is just, it's just so much fun to see that they can, that they can go this route. Now, I think what's interesting here is that Kevin Bacon has been in a Marvel movie before. Mm -hmm. He's been Sebastian Shaw in X-Men First Class. You know, he was he was the evil, you know, leader of the Hellfire Club in that movie, the villain of that film. I think did a, a really good job in that film as well. But, you know, now he's just playing himself and, and he's 
he's on the receiving end of being kidnapped by these strange aliens and we just have to see him <laughs> fight for his life essentially until they're able to get control of him but what did you what did you make of Kevin Bacon's appearance here and how they utilize him to you know sort of bring the holiday spirit up to nowhere and, and to Peter Quill you know everything that in this that contained Kevin Bacon were all the parts that felt like it was a TV special the most I know it sounds weird but like if it's like separated it from it actually being a film for me which I think was very useful because uh, I don't know every time he was in it there was always like him running or there was always like a cut that looked like a TV special to me not like a movie and I was like oh yeah I like this or like uh, uh, the moment he's running and, and, and they're jumping over the hedge behind him or <laughs> which is looked ridiculous but the dude was just just having so much fun man there was a reference to friday the 13th in here if i remember right <laughs> they were just yeah. like what is going on um and i I'm, I'm sure one of the funnest things about this for kevin bacon is being able to play both yourself and like for a split second not yourself where they're like be anything but an actor and they were like in fact <laughs> act like you're a hero he was like i'm batman i was like wait a second <laughs> wait a second how did we get there like what is going on here um or the the accent he had he was like a british soldier somewhere i don't know man but he's he's just having so much fun and and, you know i still haven't seen uh they them yet there's another movie um i I, I still want to check out but i I could just tell this guy was what he knew where he was and he, he did it that's it you know what I mean? He knew exactly what, what what project he was a part of. And I always love to see when actors can play themselves and kind of have fun, I think, in that same regard. Same way that we watched Nick Cage and Unbearable Talent in, in a couple ways. You know what I mean? Like, he was just being himself. And I love that 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 when people understand, you know, the project they're a part of, they can really bring uh, uh, something to that. So uh, I love that. I love that he got his music moment, too. Kevin Bacon got a music moment. I just really loved him being part of this at all, especially, you know, you bring up how often has he's been name dropped in the MCU, uh, really in the in these Guardians films? And because when you hear that, you're like, Kevin Bacon will never be in any of this. And then here we are, like we finally got to a point where Kevin Bacon is actually in a project, and it's a Guardians of the Galaxy project. And so I, I I always love full circle moments like that. But I'm I'm even more happy that Kevin Bacon was actually down to make these moments happen. No doubt about it. And Kevin Bacon and James Gunn, they go back a long way. They're actually real life friends. Kevin Bacon, in fact, was in James Gunn's movie Super back from 2010. So they have a relationship. So just imagine that phone call like, hey, you know, I'm doing a holiday special. You know, we've name dropped (laughs) you several times, which you already know. Kevin Bacon has talked about the fact like he went to go see Guardians and he heard his name pop up in the movie. And he was like, wait a second, is this really happening? And so I can just imagine how that phone call went. But he seemed totally down for anything that they wanted to do. And just the way that they used him here was so perfect. Um, Again, not only is it just a a fun showcase and and, and, and a use of great comedic elements that can be introduced to this, which we know James Gunn is just so good at with his writing, but it also serves a really emotional function to 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 what it means for Peter Quill as a character which is why as you said earlier Mantis did it to begin with she just wanted to do something special for the, for her brother without him even realizing that they're related which you know sort of brings us to the end of this i just want to talk about you know sort of the way that they wrap this whole thing up which i got to be honest goddamn had me misty eyed and had me really really emotional <laughs> which as usual again James Gunn he never never ceases to amaze me with how just unassuming his themes, his his projects seem on the surface, but then when you really dive in deep to them, it's like there's so much heart and emotion embedded within all of his stories and these characters that you just never think you would relate to. 
you find these moments and these opportunities in which you connect with them on, on such a deep level. And that's the humanness that, that exists behind, you know, these really larger than life characters. But man, when they get Kevin Bacon back and he finally agrees to stay and he performs and he has that music moment playing with the old 97s and Groot has made these presents, these figurines, which was so fucking cute. And he mm-hmm. hands them out to the rest of the Guardians. I thought the one that he made of Craglin was hilarious. It was, it was him sitting in a chair, holding oh, himself sitting in a chair <laughs> over and over and over again. That was that was hilarious. But just really heartfelt stuff. They're all gifting stuff to each other. Somehow Nebula got a hold of of Bucky's arm and, and was able to gift it to Rocket, which yeah, you know again whatever. is a callback from Infinity War. Just so many moments here, and then we we finally get that that special that special build up that we had been working towards this entire special. The reveal from Mantis to Peter that they were in fact related, that they both share the same father and ego, and they embrace each other. But man, this left me so emotional, very much misty eyed, on the verge of tears because it was just it was crazy how they pulled off something in in such a short amount of time. But made it feel so special and and earned over over mm-hmm. the course of the forty five minutes. No, oh, absolutely, man. It's like this is uh, uh, even another example of what it means to I think pay your audience in some ways. Like it's it's it it just felt good when when you like a lot of people who's watching this for the first time they're not gonna know what Bucky's arm meant to Rocket. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't know what that means, but we know what it means. We know what seeing seeing the flashback of peter getting his guns from from yandu you know that's like what yandu gave they never talked about that we never knew where he got them guns from now you're telling me yandu is the reason he has those it just means something else you know and i i just really love those payoffs they really you know really really meant everything and, and it's just impressive i think to be able to again create something that has so much again pay off of things you've done in the past but still have implications for the future in 45 minutes rich what that includes credits you know what i'm saying like you it just just well done man like i don't i really don't have much to say beyond that like they they did it it's a it's a special and it's a good special um in 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 james gunn should again be proud of himself there's a reason this man just got hired <laughs> there's absolutely a reason this man just got hired and th- this special if you don't want to watch the previous Guardians movie, if you don't want to watch the Suicide Squad, you can watch this short and you can understand, okay, now I get what y'all mean by James Gunn. Now I I, I understand because I I think he 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 really did that good of a job with this special. So I man, I commend James Gunn and in all parties involved involved. But this was this was really special for sure. Master t- storyteller for sure. I'd be remiss not to mention before we move on. Fucking swole Groot. What is going on with my man Bro, and his, hey. his development in his body? Like, I I cannot comprehend the stages of development that this Groot has gone through. Now, it's been confirmed that this is a different Groot than the, than the one in the first movie. This is the child of the first Groot. Like, that first Groot did, in fact, die. And so this new one is growing up, but... <laughs> He built different. He not built like the old Groot. I'm just wondering, why is he so wide, bro? Like, what is going on with him? So, my favorite part of the short, actually, is when you hear the band playing the song for the first time, Groot is back there kicking it. And I'm actually, every time he's on screen, I'm laughing, bro. I was actually legit laughing because if you look at, he's like the only person really having a good time. Like, he's yelling, I am Groot. Everyone's like, what? <laughs> why is this dude so hype but it makes sense that like this older teenage group is like going with the the rock you know what i'm saying of course he loves rock it makes a lot of sense that he would love rock and so i was having a good time but i don't know man i don't know if he's like benching trees i don't know how it works like i don't (laughs) 
like what how does he how does he start to look like that i really have no idea but i love how like it's like a baby face but like he's just big it's so funny. that's the weird thing it's his head does not thing. match his body at all it doesn't match at all but it adds so much comedy i kind of want to watch it i have to watch it again just so i can see him kicking it in the background of singing of that song bro i'm tell it might have been my favorite part of the special but it, it, it's it's we'll figure it out maybe they'll tell us in volume three why he's so jacked I, I hope so. He he must be drinking some some special protein shakes or something because it, it doesn't make any sense. He is like a, a a young adult slash still like older teenager at this point. Not the angsty teen that we saw in like Infinity War and Endgame. You know he's 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 you know he's growing up. So mm-hmm. I, I would assume he's probably like eighteen or nineteen. Yeah. You know, but I guess at that age, man, you hit that growth spurt. You start getting <laughs> some testosterone and you. you start feeling yourself. You hit the bench. That's what he's that's what he's been doing. But man, it was a good time to see Groot have so much fun there at the at the beginning of the special. But with that being said those are our thoughts on the guardians of the galaxy holiday special if you've checked out this brand new special on disney plus definitely hit us up and let us know what you think and with that being said we're going to go ahead and transition and talk about our first movie of the week that we have to review the sequel to the 2019 film knives out glass onion hello oh my god crew we've arrived disruptors have assembled. Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend. Who's that? Benoit Blanc, the detective? Mr. Blanc, I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here. When's the murder mystery start? I've invited you all to my island. Hi. Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, Will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. This is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? (laughs) Allie Berry, that has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? (laughs) Holy shit! Ladies and gentlemen, there's been a murder, and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. I must insist that nobody touch the body. Jeez, detective, who killed the party? I need to find a motive for murder. Everyone would stab a friend in the back to hold on to this rich bastard. Ooh, 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 deal with it. They're all friends. Why would anyone commit murder? Are we even going to talk about the elephant in the room? Am I the elephant? Yeah, you're the elephant. You're not that bad. Think of the danger here. Are you calling me dangerous? Well, we'll see. Let it all out. Hell yeah! This is reckless. The killer wouldn't hesitate to kill again if it covers their tracks. really great at clue huh i'm very bad at dumb things ticking boxes running around searching all the rooms it's just a terrible terrible game Now, this movie is written and directed by Ryan Johnson, and it's starring Daniel Craig, Edward Norton, Janelle Monet, Katherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Jessica Henwick, Madeline Klein, Kate Hudson, and Dave Bautista. 
So Knives Out in 2019 was a bit of an anomaly. It was such a success story. It pretty much came out of nowhere. This was Ryan Johnson's first project off of the heels of being wrapped up in the Star Wars universe. He had just directed Star Wars The Last Jedi, and so he pivoted and made an original movie with Knives Out. And when it came out in 2019 and they released it in theaters, it surprised everybody. It was made on a $40 million budget and ended up grossing over $311 million worldwide. It became like the third highest grossing original movie, not based on a pre-existing intellectual property of that year. So it was hugely successful. Lionsgate, the studio that distributed the film, immediately greenlit a sequel. However, in the process of doing so, opened up a bidding war against different streaming services and Netflix ultimately won out and paid a ridiculous amount of money to Ryan Johnson and the producers of this newly minted franchise. Netflix shelled out $469 million to create two more Knives Out sequels. And so we now have Glass Onion and they're going to make one more based on this deal. Now, what's interesting about this is that they just had a limited theatrical release, a one week release as a way to showcase the film prior to it releasing on Netflix next month in the middle of December, and we both decided to go to right. the movies because why wait? Why wait to see such a, what we think would be an incredible film? And so we got a chance to go check this out in theaters. And so with all of that out the way, I'll pass it over to you, man. What did you think about Glass Onion? They did it again. They did it again. Wow, wow, wow. I don't, I like, so, sometimes movies like this, I don't know where to start because there's so much, but. What a great time in the movies. I'm just going to start start there, man. This is another... I'm so happy there's a theatrical release because there's so many moments in the film where I was like, I'm happy there's people next to me <laughs> to react the way that we're all reacting. Uh, it's just the theatrical experience sometimes. It's, just, it's not about... Sometimes it's not about the audio or the visuals. It's about people next to you. And I was just glad to be there with people who could who could think the things I was thinking, but sometimes out loud, man. Like y'all see that? <laughs> y'all see that thing? Um, what a what a great time in the movies. I commend Ryan Johnson, man. For it, it's so hard pulling off sequels nowadays. It really is. And I think to be able to do it again to this degree is just so commendable. This movie is fun. It's funny. They found a way to break the whodunit formula again. They had already kind of done it with the first Knives Out. But for them to do it again is you just have to have, you, just, you have to sit with that. You know what I'm saying? I'm, you don't just instantly have an idea for a movie like this. Like, no, you, you kind of got to sit with it. And they did. And you could tell they cared about it. And you could tell the actors who were involved cared about it. And they were having... A ton of fun as well, man. I got Ed Norton was <laughs> kicking it in this movie, um, but it's it's it's. I just really love to see it, man. I really do. Um, I think this is another one of those. Uh, what what I something I love about this movie that I also loved about the last one is the cultural undertones of it. I love it. This movie speaks on technology. It speaks on white privilege. It speaks on the belittlement of black women. It speaks on just so much, but it doesn't have to pander it to you for you to get it. And in a lot of movies nowadays also have problems with that. They don't know how to just do it. They have to like look at the camera and be like, look, everybody, this is the thing. And this movie didn't have to say this is the thing. It just was. Um, and I really appreciate that about the film, too, man. Shout out to my Kansas City queen, Janelle Monet, who did a tremendous job, who I actually did not expect for her to really 
be the, lead the movie. She was the freaking narrator of the film. Of course, Daniel Craig, um, really, they, they duoed it. You know what I mean? It, it really was a back and forth between those two. But I didn't expect her to have as much of a stake in this film as she did, as much screen time, as much, um, yeah, just as so much work as she did. So I'm really, I was really surprised watching it. Like, dang, she's a big part of this movie. Um, so I really also really love that about it, man. But, ah, uh, man, just what an amazing film. What a what a good time at the movies. Um, again, one thing I will say is I wish this was in a more prime theater because a lot of the other movies we'll talk about on here were in prime theaters. <laughs> they, when you look at the seating charts, they weren't getting as many seats in there as this movie was getting. And so uh, it was very interesting seeing that kind of play out in the movie theater. But, man, I, I absolutely, absolutely enjoyed myself. Please see it in theaters if you can. I understand the Netflix of it all. People are going to want to sit home, but I think there is still merit in going to see this movie with a lot of different people that are also in the theater with you. Um, it's hard to talk about this movie without spoilers. Maybe uh, we, meet me on the Discord or something because there's some stuff to talk about, but I, I absolutely enjoyed myself, and I think you will too. Listen, Ryan Johnson is one of the most talented filmmakers, and this just goes to to prove his brilliance, really, at, at what he's capable of. I mean, there's so much pressure to follow up an original film, something that we just don't get that much of these days at this level with this amount of quality talent in front of and behind the camera. That was such a surprise success, what they did with Knives Out in 2019. I mean, virtually nobody saw that coming at, at, at how successful it would be. Netflix obviously swooped in and said like, oh, well, we need to get our hands on this. We need another tentpole like film. And so it was smarter than to do so. But now to come back and do it all over again and to do so at such a high level and do so so successfully, I'm just impressed. I had a great, great time with Glass Onion. I'm so, so surprised that this movie can really be compared to the first one in a lot of respects. I know for mm -hmm. a lot of people. They will hold it up to the first film and say, like, it might be just as good, if not better for for many fans. And I wouldn't I wouldn't dare argue any of that because this is a great, great movie. I mean, the way that they actually tell the story and the way that it's constructed, similar points, of course, with the first film. You talked about Janelle Monet. She really is the standout head and shoulders, I think, above everybody else in this movie. But as much of a surprise as she was to to, to have such a prominent role. We went through that in 2019 with Ana de Armas, who also had a very similar experience at this person mm -hmm. that just seemed unassuming in the movie and then steps up to the plate. And it's like, well, wait a second. She's extremely pivotal to the story that they're telling here. And so, again, just a way to go back to that same thing, but then also, again, deconstruct what they did in the first movie and just completely change up the formula this time around. This ended up being the tale of two movies for me. And without getting into details, I will say that the first like 30 minutes, I was a little nervous. I was a little mm -hmm. worried like... Well, what's happening here? Yeah, Where is this going? Mm -hmm. It is a longer runtime, so the pacing is a little bit slower than the first movie. But by the time you get to the midway point and you realize what's happening, it's like, oh, shit. This is just changing up everything that I thought I knew. And the way that it's executed is just so... It's so next level. And and when you just look at what Ryan Johnson does with the story and the script here, man, hats off to him and, and hats off to everybody a part of this cast. Everybody came to play and you can tell had so much fun, as you said, Edward Norton. I mean, he's really one of the I think one of the most underrated yet talented actors that we have. He's coming mm -hmm. in here having a grand time. Janelle Monet again steals the show for me. And and we be, be remiss not to mention, of course, Daniel Craig is Benoit Blanc. I do suspect foul play. <laughs> you know, that Southern accent that he throws on is is still hilarious. And and I think one of the small criticisms, criticisms that I would probably, you know, sort of throw at this movie, small thing, but I think that 
the reason that it doesn't necessarily match up to the original for me is I think in that first movie, that supporting cast is just, it's ridiculous who they had. You know, you got Michael Shannon and Jamie Lee Curtis and Tony Collette and Christopher Plummer, Lakeith. It's, it's ridiculous. Like the talent that they had there. And again, that film was a bit of a surprise. We hadn't seen anything necessarily to that degree. We've seen murder mysteries, obviously, and it's taking a lot from Agatha Christie, but that had a new twist on it here. I think that this movie, because they know that Daniel Craig is the star, he is like the engine of this franchise now. He's the centerpiece that'll be the through line, the common denominator amongst it all. I think that the supporting cast in this movie, with the exception of Janelle Monet and Edward Norton, is somewhat reduced than, than compared to the first one. I feel like the first one was more evenly distributed mm-hmm. in terms of who we spend time with and learning about all these characters, a part of that family. This one felt like, well, we got to give even more to Benoit Blanc, which is, I think, the right intuition. I think that that's where you go. But that's also sometimes possibly a drawback where we have to focus more on our franchise star yeah. as opposed to maybe giving a little bit more time with some of these other supporting players. And I do think, again, that supporting cast from the first one overall is stronger because, you know, even Chris Evans in that movie is like, True. he's also like co-starring as well. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's a lot there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. that doesn't take anything away from Glass Onion. It's still just a hugely, hugely entertaining movie. So much fun. If you wait and check it out on Netflix, I think you're going to have a grand time. And I think it's going to probably end up in a lot of people's, you know, top 10 list at the end of the year because it's it's really that good we will talk about this film again in this podcast because i want to circle back and have a conversation about the box office which you had touched on but there's a story developing as it relates to another movie that we'll review a little bit later on but those are our thoughts on glass onion and knives out mystery if you've checked out this film in theaters definitely hit us up and let us know what you think and with that being said we're going to transition and talk about another netflix movie that just released in the past couple of weeks the wonder It's not your job to question us. You are here only to watch. The watch is to last two weeks. We are proposing eight-hour shifts. There is to be no conferring between the two of you. On the 14th day, you will each present your separate testimony. May I ask, gentlemen, no one has told me what precisely is wrong with the girl. Anna O'Donnell doesn't eat. How long exactly has it been since the last time the girl ate? Four months. That's impossible. Thumbs up. And eyes wide open. Are you nervous at all? Why should I be nervous? Do you know the dangers of a prolonged fast, Anna? I don't eat sweets. I live a manna. From heaven. And how does that feel? Full. Anna is in danger. She's an actress. She's chosen. Are you feeling well in yourself, Anna? Very well, Father. Thank you. What right does a stranger have to come between a child and his people? Here to find out the truth. Jesus I am begging you, you must stop the watch. It was a terrible mistake to bring a nurse here, an English nurse. Will you help me? You don't understand us.
Now, this movie is directed by Sebastian Lelio, and it's written by Emma Donahue and Sebastian Lelio, excuse me, and Alice Birch. And it's starring Florence Pugh, Tom Burke, Neve Algar, Elaine Cassidy, Dermot Crowley, Brian F. O'Byrne, David Wilmot, Ruth Bradley, Keelan Byrne, Josie Walker, Kieran Hines, Toby Jones, and Keela Lord Cassidy. So The Wonder is a movie that's gotten a little bit of attention over the past couple of months. It actually premiered earlier this fall at the Telluride Film Festival back in September, I believe it was, but it was exclusively bought by Netflix and just released on the streaming platform. This movie's set in 19th century Ireland, and it's based on actual true stories from that time about a group of fasting girls from the Victorian era who would spend months and months fasting and and actually withholding food from themselves. And it actually develops into a really, really intriguing story and mystery, mystery from there on out. But before getting into any other details, I'll pass it over to you. I just want to hear what you thought about this new film, The Wonder. You know, in watching this movie, I couldn't help but feel like Florence Pugh was trying to clear the air. <laughs> she was like, don't worry, darling. Mm, I need y'all to go watch uh, The Wonder on Netflix for me. So uh, y'all could just forget about everything going on with Don't, don't Worry, Darling. But man, what an interesting movie. Uh, it's 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 very rare that like, I don't know, I feel like I watch a movie and I'm like, what's really going on here? And this movie does have that. It does have a mystique to it in, in, in the fact that it is a period piece, I think it helps add to the mystique. Um, but it's a weird one, man. Uh, but I, one thing I really do like about it is I, a lot of times I always like when a film is trying to give you a bigger picture or a bigger idea. And again, that's, that's another hard thing to talk about without spoilers, but there's just a, a motif in here that has to do with I'm a it's very specific and very general but it has to do with the birds <laughs> that I think is really cool um in the bird in the cage which I think is really cool that 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 is echoed I think throughout the film that makes me that made me tilt my head like hmm y'all trying to talk about something here and I actually really appreciate it um that being said man I think Florence Pugh is Florence Pugh she does what she does she did a, she did a, a a pretty good job and I think um it's a fine movie you know for the most part nothing to really blow my socks off but I think it's a watch you know for for anybody who's looking for something else to watch on Netflix or to, uh that Florence Pugh was in it really is just one of those things that felt like I don't think it'll be for everybody because of the period piece of it all because of the weirdness of it all because everything isn't laid out for you but I think if 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 you're a movie watcher, I think you 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 could watch this and find some merit and find some something out of this film. One of the other things I really like about this movie that the director does is the there's a lot of fourth wall breaks in this movie, and the narrator of this film isn't who you think it is. And that I really like that about it too. That's a like that every time there's a fourth wall break, it it made me feel something, and that doesn't always happen. I think in certain films either where like somebody looks at you in the camera and you feel something, but it's the way it was shot here and the reasons in which, and the times in which the fourth wall breaks were shot. I was like, Hmm, I like this. <laughs> I like the way that made me feel. Um, and for that again, man, it's, it's, a, it's a fine movie. You're not gonna spend too much time on it, but I think, I think people can, 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 can watch this and, and get something out of it. So I enjoyed myself. Not the greatest movie in the world, but hey, I, I, to me, added it to another good Florence Pugh um, film um, in, in, in added to uh, another weird period piece <laughs> that we have. But I, I liked it. 
Yeah, this film is actually also based on a book which came out in 2016. Also, that f- book was authored by Emma Donahue, who is on the screenplay for this film as well. So very much tied into what the fabric of that of that story was back when it was released in 2016. But coming into this, I didn't really have many expectations for what it was going to be. I didn't watch a trailer. I just knew it was coming out because of Florence Pugh. She's obviously a big star these days, but I was interested and I know you saw it. And so checked it out. And, you know, the thing that I do enjoy about this is the fact that while it is a period piece, which they have a certain stigma to them, that they, they, they might be a little bit slower and they mm-hmm. might be a little bit more historically accurate. Yes, that that that's all true about this movie as well. But it also adds a lot of psychology behind the story that they're telling. There's a really psychological sort of edge to it that you just don't always get with period pieces at all. And so I think that that kind of makes it feel a little bit different than what we're typically used to seeing. But the story here, as you come into it, there is a big element of mystery behind what's actually happening because these girls, these fasting girls, like miraculously, they're able to survive months without Mm -hmm. eating. And so you have to figure out like, well, how is this possible? What are we doing here? Is there something supernatural at work? Is there some shenanigans at play? So that's what the entire story is about. Again, based off of things that actually happened. These are true events of these girls actually doing this back in in 19th century Ireland, which I did not know before coming into this. So it was actually a, a film that was educational in that aspect. And so I appreciate it for that. And I also really liked the fact that they went to Ireland and shot this on real locations, like all of this is actually shot in Ireland. Oh, Much of the cast is Irish. And so you can absolutely see the attention to detail on screen. The costumes are very accurate. The way that it looks, the cinematography, I mean, it feels mm-hmm. it feels really classical. It feels really vintage and, and old, you know, and I think in a good way to make it actually sort of steep you into the world. And during that time period to make it feel like you're actually going back back in time and experiencing the story firsthand, which is no accident that they do this because the movie is bookended by moments that are explicitly designed to make it feel like you are going into the past. I won't talk about exactly what it is, but right. it's it's very much designed to make you feel that. And I think I think by and large, they succeed at that. For me, though, I think where this movie doesn't work quite as well is the story and the fact that there is a very slow build to what the ultimate payoff is. And I think by the time we got to the payoff and we understood what was going on, I was a little bit underwhelmed. It made sense logistically, like it all made sense, but I don't know. I was kind of expecting after all of the buildup and the buildup, I was expecting something maybe a little bit crazier to happen. But again, because this is based off of mostly historical accurate stuff it's sort of it's sort of i can i I can sort of bypass that and understand why they reached the conclusion that they did but that kind of let me down and and ultimately the atmosphere that was created the tension that was created was kind of for not i I think by the time we got to the end of the story i was like well wait that's it that's that's really kind of the payoff here Mm -hmm. so it was somewhat disappointing but you know ultimately i thought it was a fine film it's very much well made i mean there there's clearly some some technical proficiency that's happening behind and in front of the camera of course the the entire cast here is really really tremendous and 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 acts you know acts in really really positive and and in strong ways um but ultimately the story just kind of kind of you know left me a little bit cold at the end of it so it's not necessarily something that i would revisit or or or, you know rewatch. but i do think that there's some merit here to the to, to what they did here and i think that there's you know certainly some successes but overall just a fine film for me but definitely interested to see what other people think if you've checked out the wonder on netflix definitely hit us up and let us know what you think about it and with that being said we're going to transition to our next film a film that was actually released over the thanksgiving holiday bones and all but you can't spend the night not all night so where'd you move here from anyway eastern shore try that (gasps) 
cops get here, you have to be good and gone. I can't help you anymore. I know it's not your fault. You were born this way. You ate them. I believed you had to. I don't know why. I smelt you. I didn't know I could do that. I thought I was the only one. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. Are there lots of us? I don't actually meet many others. Why'd you offer to bring me along? You seem nice. I am nice. I came looking for you. I smelled you. You can smell me half a mile away. Can you do that? Not that far. I got rules. Never, never, ever ate an eater. I thought you might be hungry. For hens? No. Who lives here? Is there someone dead up there? I'm not gonna be like that. We don't have many options. Either you eat, you off yourself, or you lock yourself up in there. We're dangerous. One of us? Jake's teach me how to smell other eaters. <laughs> but we can hurt one another just as bad. Go, 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 go. It's too much. We gotta do this. We have to do it. You've been following me. And we got unfinished business. You don't think I'm a bad person. Now, this movie is directed by Luca Guadagnino, and it's written by David Kachnich, and it's starring Taylor Russell, Timothy Chalamet, and Mark Ryland. So, Bones and All is the latest film from Luca Guadagnino. This is also a director that has teamed up with Timothy Chalamet before. Most recently, they worked together on Call Me By Your Name, which I think is a, is a pretty wonderful film. Coming into Bones and All, seeing the previews, very interesting look at what the story was going to be, because it is about something that we just don't often see. It's about a pair of cannibals essentially people mm. that have cannibalistic tendencies they are eating other humans in order to mm. survive i guess this is this is the way that they are able to constantly feed themselves to to a certain extent and so it's it's a bit of a strange story in that regard but this was something that i was definitely interested in just because of the talent in front of and behind the camera most notably taylor russell who i think is having a really really strong early career thus far and i'm super excited to see where she goes I've been very much liking everything that she's been a part of, most notably Waves, a movie we've talked about several times on this show. Yes. She's also been in the two um, the two movies, the Escape Room movies, Escape room. Um, those thriller slash horror movies, which, you know, are both enjoyable. And Timothy Chalamet, obviously, is a, is a huge name, you know, definitely on his on his rise as well and, and been in a lot of projects lately. So to see these two kind of pair off and be in this really unique movie I was interested in. And I got to say, Bones and all. For me, which is unexpected, very tough watch um, because it, it, it deals with two young adults who have to do this, you know, really barbaric sort of thing. This really this thing that we're just not accustomed to ever seeing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a tough watch. There, there are many scenes in here which they, they do not shy away from the camera and they show you exactly what's happening as it relates to the violence that has to be inflicted on others. And it was it was it was difficult for me to sit through. And I actually have a strong stomach when it comes to violence in movies. But mm -hmm. for some reason, it's something about seeing people 
eat other people in such a realistic way that just does not work. And I just cannot, <laughs> I cannot bear it. And, and, and notably in the beginning of the film, when you first start to see it come, come to light, that's where it really kind of hit me um, at how brutal this was going to be because that violence that they, that they depict in this movie, I think in a really, really fascinating way is so realistic. And that's what makes it so uncomfortable. It's not cartoonish violence. It's actually really realistic violence. And mm -hmm. so it might be a very, very tough people, um, not tough people, a tough watch for people. And I don't think that this movie is necessarily for everybody. But I will say that at the center of it, it's ultimately a romance story. It's about these two people living on the margins of society. They are outcasts. They don't really have friends. They don't have a great family structure at all. Um, they're kind of living living in poverty as well. And so it, it's kind of a heartwarming look at how these two find each other and come together and, and ultimately try to figure out where they're going to go. Who are they going to be? You know, how are they going to survive in this world that just won't accept them, you know, for mm -hmm. who they are because of because of what they what they deal with on, on a personal day to day basis. And it's also about, you know, family, chosen family, but then also the family that's, you, you know, you're just kind of born into that you don't have a say in. And I think a lot of that stuff is really, really effective. It's it's a very intense movie, but in a good way in which you can see just sort of the romance and the love between these two, between Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet really sort of come to the surface and, and, and become stronger and stronger as they go grow closer towards each other because they have a lot in common. But it is it is intense also in the in the in the, the, the degree of the violence that that's communicated on screen. So, again, I don't think it's necessarily for everybody, but I can't deny that it's absolutely well directed, very much well acted. You know, both of these both of these actors here, Timothy and Taylor, are just so talented. And Taylor Russell, this is really her movie. Um, I, I think Timothy Chalamet might be the bigger name at this point, but this is about her. This is about her character. Mm -hmm. And she steps up to the play for me. She works in. Everything that she does, you totally buy into what she's going through and her emotions and just the roller coaster that she has to experience here, especially in, in terms of just figuring out who she is, because it is a, a coming of age story as well, in addition to those other things that I've mentioned. So overall, definitely a fascinating story. I don't know how many times I ever watch it again, because <laughs> I don't really want to see people biting other folks fingers off, you know, but but that being said, there's there's a lot here. There's a lot to dig into. And I just ultimately think that the chemistry between Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet kind of carry it to making it a really, really good film for me. Man, two early beasts, man. I can't wait to check this out, especially my love for Taylor Russell. Um, if you're, if you're listening to this, Taylor Russell, no, I'm just playing. Uh, man, <laughs> this, this, it just sounds like a wild movie. I remember hearing about it. And every, every time somebody, actually over the week, people would ask me, have you seen Bones and All yet? I was like, no, I haven't seen it yet. If my little cousin said something, he, he turned to me and was like, are they eating people in that movie? The dude is like 10. I was like, uh, <laughs> I think so. You know, I was like, it's just a crazy premise, I think, for a film. Even the trailer, people are like, man, what is really going on here? Um, but, you know me, I mean, I like weird movies like that. I really can't wait to check it out, especially two, tr again, tremendous actors in Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet. I just want to see what they do on screen with such a wild premise um, of a film. But, man, can't wait to check it out. Uh, like you said, maybe I'll probably only watch it once, which would you make <laughs> which yeah it just it is what it is you know movies like that but i'm here for the gore for the most part but we'll see what happens <laughs> when i watch it yeah also want to shout out mark rylance in this movie he he's doing something that we've never really seen him do before mm. in terms of acting i mean he goes on a very very dark turn here um and and again is also sort of acting on cannibalistic impulses this is all in the trailer if you haven't seen it but um yeah it just presents a really interesting story amongst these these people that, that that live a part of a very small community that I'm sure absolutely exists. This is a real thing. And so it, it might not be that far fetched after all, but it, it's a touching story to just kind of see them come together, even amidst 
all of the violence and the bloody tendencies of, of, of what they have to deal with that we see that we see happen on screen. But those are our thoughts on Bones and all. If you've checked out this film, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition to our next film, the brand new Disney animated film that just released in theaters, Strange World. doing in our front yard our entire world is in grave danger i want you to come with me on an expedition i'm not my father he was the explorer i know you were just a kid when he went missing but now you're all we got mr clade i'm a huge fan oh, thank you of your dad do you think you could forge his autograph what where in the world are we Ethan, you brought the dog? Sorry! We are clearly in uncharted territory. Whoa. Hello. You probably don't understand a word I'm saying. Of course I understand you. Huh? <laughs> Dad? Dad? Grandpa? I'm a grandpa. What is this place? The cliffs are alive. And the waters dissolve the flesh off your bones. Everything down here is trying to kill us. Do you mind if I call you Splat? You just kind of give me Splat vibes. Ow! I guess I deserve that. Grandpa's awesome! He is not awesome! You gave me a machete for my birthday? <laughs> Classic Jaeger claimed. I was too. I'm loving this family reunion, but come on, we got a world to save. We need you to figure this out, otherwise we're doomed. We are doomed! Wait, seriously? <laughs> no, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Now, this movie is directed by Don Hall, and it's written by Keen Gwynn, and it's starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Dennis Quaid, Jabuki Young-White, Gabrielle Union, and Lucy Liu. So this is the 61st feature film from Walt Disney Animation Studios, obviously the most cherished and famed animation studio in Hollywood. They have a tremendously long lineage and history. But over the past few years, I think that Disney Animation and also Pixar under the Walt Disney Company have gone through a stage of evolution that nobody quite saw coming because of the pandemic, a lot of things have changed in terms of how we receive these movies, how they're released and distributed. And so we've gotten recent hits like Raya and the Last Dragon and mm -hmm. also last year Encanto, which was released in theaters, didn't do that well, but had a really, really impressive run on Disney Plus, became so popular once it finally made its way on the streaming service. Now, Strange World is dropping on the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, which Disney typically does every year. They typically reserve out of space to release a family animated film during the Thanksgiving holiday. Makes all the sense in the world, but I didn't get a chance to check this one out, and I know, I know you got a chance to go to theaters and, and, and check out Strange World. So with all of that out the way, I'll pass it over to you. What did you think about this brand new Walt Disney animated feature film? Strange World does so many things that other Disney movies don't do that it's unfortunate that most people will probably never see this movie. 
uh it's not the greatest movie in the world it's actually like unbalanced at times like even the climax of the movie i was looking for wasn't what i was hoping for but there's a movie here and it's a decent movie it's just uh uh it's just not all put together and i think part of that is because there's so many ideas in the movie which i actually really like like they were swinging for fences left and right man i mean they are they were going for it and those that that those ideas are usually my favorite parts of the film again the the problem is they never really make a movie out of it <laughs> completely um but it's it is an enjoyable watch it 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 this this is really a story for the most part about a lot of it about um, in in some ways it's, it's what uh, uh, turning red was about kind of expectations of in in that movie is it was it was the ma- the maternal figures right in the family it was the matriarchs of the family uh, where that pressure you feel like you have to be like them this time it's it's about fathers and the patriarch and what it's like for your father to put expectations on you, even though you don't want to be that person that your father wants you to be, or you don't want to be that person or your son doesn't want to be the person that you want them to be and what that looks like. This movie, I think does a decent job again of hitting those things, but they just needed to bring it home a little bit better. Um, given the ideas surrounding it, this movie is called strange world because they live somewhere that they've never explored the underground or they never completely explored where they are. And they end up in a spot of where they live that they've never seen. They're like, what the hell is this? Um, and I can't really speak too much more of that without spoiling the film. But once you realize what's happening, it actually kind of blew my mind. I was like, the, the character design from that standpoint, I think it's tremendous. Like, I think they did such a good job. Like, if you if you rewrite this as like a, Maybe even like a book or something. I don't even know. Even a T. It actually would have been a great TV show. I actually think it would have been a really good TV show. But I, there's there's a lot there. I think that that would have worked had they just focused a little bit more. And honestly, it could have used probably a little bit more time. Um, it's like an hour forty. Maybe it's just one of the ones that could have could have used a little bit more time to 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 get some of those ideas through. Another thing about it. We've been talking about this with Disney movies recently. It kind of has a, <laughs> it follows the formula. There's no real villain of the film. I was going to ask you that if there was a villain in this movie. There's because n- I didn't know. <laughs> There's no real villain in the film. Um, I will say this one, I think, works a little bit more because I, I guess this is kind of spoiling it a little bit, but also not really. But it, it it works a little bit more because it speaks to uh, uh, the environment, how you treat your environment. Um, in 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 that, it, it it makes you it makes you go, okay, I can see this one. You know, remember when they first started doing it? We we're like, okay, I can see that, like that one worked. But multiple when you do it over and over, you're like, all right, now y'all, we kind of miss villains. Like, where's Scar at? You know what I'm saying? Where's Maleficent? Like, where are these people at? um that are that are iconic to 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 the disney lineage um and this movie doesn't have that either so it it does also lose a little bit of points for that but i think again the subjects that it touches upon this movie the son in the movie is gay (laughs) you know what i mean like i think that like and it wasn't hidden at all like everyone was i don't know it's something about that i felt like disney 
you did a good job. They didn't pander on it. Like I was just talking about with some other things, uh, some other movies we reviewed, but they didn't pander on it. It just kind of existed. And, and for that, there were just so many good ideas that I have to give points to for this movie. And it's sad that people won't see that Disney was trying here. Like Disney actually had some some ideas that they were trying, but they just all are going to kind of fall by the wayside. One, because of the nature of the film. And two, because a lot of people just aren't going to see this movie, which is, again, also unfortunate. Hopefully Disney Plus happens. More people get some eyeballs on it um, and people realize it's OK. But it kind of after watching that was like kind of feels like the good dinosaur like good dinosaur is like one of those pixar movies that just like a lot of people haven't seen but it's cool you know it's decent it's a decent film and that's what strange world feels like it kind of feels like that so um all in all i hope people see it whenever they can just so they can see the ideas um but uh yeah it's just unfortunate at the end of the day so that's actually a great segue into what I wanted to talk about. Again, I haven't seen the movie. I do intend to check it out probably when it gets on Disney Plus. But this is a notable box office bomb, which is really unfortunate to see. The movie made about $19 million over the holiday Ooh. weekend. It costs a lot to produce. I mean, the movie is estimated to have about a $180 million budget. And so when you only make $19 million in your opening weekend, that's not a great sign. Variety estimates that the film might lose up to $100 million. Deadline went even further and said that it might lose $147 million. And so that's not that's not chump change at all. That's a lot of money. I mean, that that is the epitome of what a what, what would be considered a bomb. But these days, things are just so warped and so strange, like box office stories, which we've sporadically covered on this show. It's just hard to really get a grasp on what is and what isn't actually successful mm -hmm. because you have a movie like this, which was released in 4,100 screens and made as little as it did. But then you get another film, which going back to what I said earlier, Glass Onion comes out in about 600 screens, a very, very small theatrical run. It's only in theaters for one week and it has a higher per screen average than this film did. And it makes nearly as much. They estimate the Glass Onion because Netflix doesn't do the actual box office reporting, but it's estimated that it made about 15 million. So it's only about 4 million away from a film that has a much, much larger reach from the theatrical exhibition side of things. And so when you talk about successes and failures, I don't even know how to paint this because in that deadline article in which they estimate that this film might lose Disney 147 million, they say that that might not, that might not necessarily be a bad thing because considering the past couple of years of Disney and what they've been through, Maybe releasing it theatrically was the right way to go because we have heard stories and we've read reports about animators at both Walt Disney Animation and Pixar being unhappy with the treatment of their films, with the fact that many of these projects have gone directly to streaming. Ryan the Last Dragon, Luca, yep. Soul. Soul didn't really have a choice. I mean, it was at the height of the pandemic, but still, yeah. Soul turning red, mm -hmm. which feels like the runaway success you know of the year sure. go straight to disney plus and even Encanto had a theatrical release but was in theaters for maybe three or four weeks mm -hmm. before it went to disney plus so i think the morale across these companies has not been great because i can't imagine a lot of these guys working at these companies these guys and girls excuse me got into this business so that there's these really high quality productions would just go straight to streaming I, I think that they want these films to be seen on big screens. That's what they designed them for. Yeah. That's what the the legacy and the lineage has always been. Of course, times are different, but I think that Disney is somewhat to be, I don't want to say blame, but they are partially responsible. And that's kind of like Bob Chapek's direction and leadership before he was just ousted in, in, in making the decision to send so many of these films to streaming. And so Deadline is arguing, well, maybe releasing it theatrically, though it's a bomb, was a good move, you know, to increase morale, like at least give it a shot. 
But when you lose as much money as you do here, <laughs> you have to look at it and say like, well, wait a second. There's another added ca- caveat that we should talk about. You you talked about the gay character that's included in here. Well, again, under Bob Chapek's leadership, he had the whole controversy with the don't say gay bill in Florida. So yeah. to put a movie with a prominently featured gay character straight to streaming might not be a great look, right? Even though it did not do well financially, why wouldn't you want to give it the biggest platform possible? You know, when you're doing something that hasn't always been done before, that space isn't always made for that community be, to be represented. I don't really know how to look at this. I mean, look, money is money at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. This is gonna, this is gonna hurt. This is not helping the case of future animation that's gonna come out of this studio. And and even earlier this year, Lightyear did not do all that well. We right. we talked about that. I mean, I'm just, I'm really concerned at the end of the day. Um, I think that yes, Encanto is like a success story because of what it did on Disney plus, but what does that really translate to mm-hmm. outside of like a couple of number one songs? Like, is it going to have a la- lasting legacy legacy? Hope so. If it's good, it will. But I- I'm just kind of curious, like where your headspace is with, you know, with it. What do you think about the, the seemingly lack of marketing behind this movie? Like how, how little it was talked about in its release and just ultimately what the result was, man. Uh, what a weird time for Disney, especially, after what I call to be like a renaissance, man, you know, Big Hero 6 came out and there was Zootopia, Moana. I mean, it was banger after banger for Disney there for a little bit. The the way Frozen broke the world, you know what I'm saying? And now we're just in a, a weird rut of what is even Disney animation at this point. The studio that is the reason a lot of us are here, you know what I'm saying? Even watching movies in the first place. It, it's 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 really crazy, to, I think, to wrap your head around. I don't know, man. I don't know what to make of this either. Part of me is like, uh, absolutely, you want to see these movies get the theater treatment. Strange World is beautiful. It is. I, I, I think we've just hit a moment in animation where almost everything is going to look great. We've just hit it. Like animators get it, art directors for them, they just get it now. And so I, I, when I'm watching almost any, remember even my criticism about Lightyear wasn't the look. I think the movie looks crazy <laughs> when it comes to animation. I was like, dang, this movie looks good, but it's something about this 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 moment in time that 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 I think that we're just gonna have to figure out. And it's what's even weirder. It's not. It's actually not weird. They're getting their ass kicked by Illumination right now. Everybody goes pull up. Go, they're gonna pull up for Minions. They yeah. they might not pull up for Disney, but they're gonna pull up for Minions every time. And in in part of me even thinks it's kind of outside of a, a movie concept. Like Minions saturated the market. People was wearing Minions pajamas, costumes. People was Illumination is now they got some stuff in Universal. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. There's just things that feel different in the Minions franchise than what Disney is doing. Disney doesn't feel like they're pushing their animation like they should. Like you said, it could be the Bob Chapek crux of it all, thing of it all that, that's kind of happening here where they're not giving these animated films the love that they really need or deserve. And so part I absolutely kind of love the idea of putting it in theaters because that's what animators want. At the same time, you also animators also want to be able to pat themselves on the back and say, but it did crazy on streaming. You know what I mean? Like, oh, but streaming did way better numbers than it did in theater, even though that's the screen you want to see it on. And so it's just a weird, weird, weird middle ground that Disney has to figure out at this point, because it's it's I can't even say it's an animation problem. If people pull up for minions, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, 
I can't say it's a it's it's an animation problem. It's a Disney problem, and I don't know it. It's not a pick. It's not just Pixar. It's not just Disney. It's Disney. It's the umbrella. It's the whole thing, and it's something they're gonna have to figure out. I don't know what it looks like for them. I don't know what it means, but it, it needs to be fixed ASAP because this this can't be it. You know what I mean? Like this can't. This really can't. Um, especially again, this is a strange world as a movie. I was like again once you the scale of it once you understand it the scale of what you're seeing on screen it's different we haven't really seen a lot of this scale like that once you see once you see strange world you'll understand but we haven't seen a lot of scale like that and and yeah it just sucks that a lot of people won't see it on the big screen and won't be able to go see it in the theater um at their leisure it's just weird uh so yeah i, I really don't have i can't lean one way or the other either because it's a weird problem i think to be in but Clearly, it's something that can be fixed. I have to say it one more time because Minions is already there, so they just got to figure it out. Yeah, I think it's actually representative of a of a larger problem. Just the industry is dealing with this. It's not even just Disney. Disney is definitely a uh, a, a recent perpetrator because they're dealing with this on a, on a lot of different fronts. All the examples we laid out before with Pixar and Walt Disney Animation, but even like more recent things. When you look at Hocus Pocus two, is their most mm. successful streaming movie ever. On on paper, it would it would make sense. Like I, I would say, just naturally, if I had to pick between theatrical and streaming, I would say, yeah, streaming. Hocus Pocus one wasn't this huge, massive hit, mm-hmm. but now that it does so incredibly well on streaming, do you not second guess and say, well, maybe that could have had like a decent theatrical run. Right. Maybe that could have made more money. Maybe we did leave some 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 financial money and gains on the table by not releasing it. Disenchanted was intended for a theatrical release, but then was released recently just on Disney mm-hmm. Plus because of the pandemic. But that first one did pretty well. It made a lot of money when it came out a few, you know, back in I think 2011 that was. And so, again, who's to say? It's just it's a tough call. Again, I think it's it's a larger problem with the industry as a whole because when you go over to the Netflix side of things and you look at Glass Onion, in which it made a really impressive amount of money for for as small of a exhibition run that it had, you'd have to say like, oh well, yeah, you probably left about 50 to 60 million dollars on the table if you maybe did 2,000 screens instead of 600, but at the same time, Netflix doesn't care about theaters. They they want people to sign up for Netflix. That's that's their bottom line, and they make more money based on their revenue mm-hmm. than all of these movie studios combined in a single year. And so they don't really care about a I guess a fifty million dollar you know sort of payday from a theatrical run, even though I think that they probably should because it just would be healthy for for right. theaters. But that being said, again, I think that the whole industry is just in a weird state. It, it's hard to determine what is and what is you know considered a success versus a failure i do hope that strange world when it makes its way to disney plus has more success the one thing i do think that's working against it in which it probably won't replicate what encanto did last year there ain't no music ain't no music and that that was huge for encanto Mm -hmm. last year that was the primary reason why people tapped into that even turning red has a musical component right Encanto went for no music (laughs) (laughs) i'm like what are we really doing here like why am i spending time in this world so yeah, man, they got a lot to figure out, as you said, but we will have to certainly stay tuned and watch out for whatever's going to come out of Disney in the future. But those are our thoughts on Strange World. If you've checked out this film in theaters, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition to talk about our last movie of this week, the brand new film starring Jonathan Majors, Devotion. You're the only person I ever met belonged in this guy. Remember, you belong down here with us too, okay? You 
commanding officer called you one of the best pilots he's ever seen. It must be hard being the A naval aviator? Absolutely. whole world's looking different. Did you ever think that you'd be in a squadron with a colored aviator? Lieutenant Tom Hudner. Jesse Brown. It's good to meet you. We're taking a slight detour on the way home. Say again? What are you going to find out about your wingman cruising at 10,000 feet, Lieutenant? Put him in a little bit of trouble. Who knows? We might get a peek at who he really is. Koreans came pouring over the 38th parallel. Our guys need help, and we're up. We knew this day might come. Yeah, it doesn't make it any easier. The most important thing is this. We bring everyone home. Mistakes get us killed. I can't tell you how many times people have told me to give up quick, die even. That's why you can't always do what you're told. It's a man! If I did, I wouldn't be here. What do you want me to do? Just be my wingman. The real battle in all of life is being someone that people can count on. Show off. That was pretty good. It's good. <laughs> now, this movie is directed by J.D. Dillard, and it's written by Jake Crane and Jonathan A. Stewart, and it's starring Jonathan Majors and Glenn Powell. So I got a chance to check out Devotion this past Thanksgiving holiday. It's actually, this film is based off of a book that came out in 2015 called Devotion, an Epic Story of Heroism, Friendship, and Sacrifice. It's ultimately telling this story between these two individuals, these two naval officers that grew to become really, really close friends during the Korean War. And so this is based on real-life individuals. It's actually a biographical film. And so wanted to check this out. Glenn Powell is having a really, really successful year. He's coming off of the heels of Top Gun Maverick, the biggest movie of 2022. Coming in and doing more flight exercises in this film. Jonathan Majors is obviously on the rise in a big, big, bold way. The next few months for him is going to be crazy. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is going to come out in a couple of months shortly thereafter, followed by Creed 3. And so this is kind of kicking off, you know, a really hot season for Jonathan Majors. But I checked this out, and overall, this movie was fine for me. It was, it was a pretty decent film. I think that where it works the best is ultimately in the chemistry between Jonathan Majors and Glenn Powell. You see these two go through this experience together as naval officers during the Korean War, which is often considered the Forgotten War. Many, many don't talk about the Korean War. It's not it's not as it's not as I don't want to say fondly remember because it, it's war. It's not fondly remembered, but people just don't talk about it as much as World War One or World War Two. And even in popular media, we see more stories come from those two wars because of the scale. And obviously, the more countries and, and political figures that were involved in how just how much they changed the course of human history, whereas the Korean War, a little bit of a smaller war in which people don't pay that much attention to, but certainly 
people died, lives were sacrificed, and they went through some really tumultuous times during this experience. And so you kind of get to see them experience these things at the same time. But they're obviously coming at it from two totally different vantage points because this is obviously said during the 50s when the Korean War happened. And so Jonathan Majors as a black man and portraying this black character is experiencing racism and bigotry, you know, on behalf of his other naval officers. And so you have Glenn Powell coming in here as a comrade who, you know, obviously doesn't care as much about race. You know, they they are mm-hmm. developing a natural trust and friendship as they are embarking on really, really dangerous missions in which their lives are always going to be on the line. And so I found that the chemistry between these two absolutely worked. You really buy into their relationship. There is a big amount of patience that I think you have to have as an audience member and as a viewer to really see it grow into what it does become and to, and to see the full arc of it. But I think it really works in that in that respect. The the the, the criticism that I would levy against it is the length of it. It's, it's a two hour and 20 minute movie. So mm. they take their time. They really take their time to just let you live with these characters, let you soak in all this information and let you just see how they go through this experience together. And I think... I really do think that it could have been tightened up. I think that we could have gotten to that ultimate place by the end of it. Once I saw what the what the ultimate resolution to the story was and how it ended, I think I think that we could have gotten there quicker because there are many moments in the movie in which not that much is happening. It does propel the story forward, but not that much is happening, and it could have been moved quicker in terms of pacing. We we just spent a lot of time in, in, in maybe a bar, or maybe maybe at this dance or this this engagement or this ball where there's there's maybe like eight, nine or ten minutes just kind of spent in this one area. And I think that those sequences could have been shortened up. And another positive thing that I'll say that that that's really strong about this movie is the aerial sequences. Because a lot mm. of it is about these naval officers. That stuff is really, really good. Now Tom Cruise is not attached to this movie, so he's not <laughs> he's not being the crazy bastard that he is yeah. and putting everybody through hellacious training and doing what they did in Maverick earlier this year. But it's still impressive nonetheless. All this stuff looks really good. It looks real. It looks like they were actually flying these planes, these, you know, these early model planes and, and, and actually, you know, participating in this stuff. And there's actually some on the ground battles, you know, that happen mm. over the course of the movie. And that was a that was a pleasant surprise. I would have liked more of it. Uh, honestly, if I'm if I'm looking at a war movie, I would have liked a little bit more of that of that action, those aerial sequences and some of the army battles mm-hmm. on the ground, but overall, I think it's a it's a pretty well-rounded story that just ultimately needed to move quicker. And I think that the pacing of it just might turn a lot of people away because it is a long story and you do have to invest some time into it. And so that's kind of the big criticism that I would that I would, you know, really again throw at it, but Beyond that, these two actors are very talented. The direction is really, really good for the most part. And I think it's overall a fine film. Man, it's crazy to see Glenn Powell in another play movie. Uh, I wonder, this dude, I hope he doesn't end up in one next year. Uh, but he has so much charisma, man. That dude has a lot of charisma, for sure. It's crazy to see. Plus, you know, we already know this is the Jonathan Major season. This dude's about to be in everything uh, that we're about <laughs> to be watching on the screen. Um, so I, I think it's cool they got to work together so early. Because they do feel like... They're in similar parts of their career, kind of. I know it's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, shoot, they got to work together early. So I think that's dope. Um, yeah, I can't wait to watch it, man. I always, I'll, I'll still always love playing movies like this and war movies like this. So can't wait to check it out, especially like you said, it's not a lot about the Korean War out there at all. Um, and other than that, we were just talking about J.D. Dillard um, in terms of uh, uh, something, him being a director. I forgot what we were even talking about. MCU movies or something, maybe? DC? Yeah. I forgot. Possibly taking up a new a new project for Marvel, you know, perhaps. Because I think his, his schedule is free because he was working on a Star Wars project. He was. Yep. But now he's free because that project got canned. So and now he's free. Watch him get picked up mm-hmm. by DC. But yeah, it's always cool to see a black director 
um, um, take the reins, man. And so I can't I can't wait to see what he, he does next, too. Absolutely. Well, those are our thoughts on devotion. If you've checked out this film, definitely hit us up and let us know what you're thinking. With that being said, we're going to go ahead and transition back to the TV side of things, back to the Disney Plus side of things, because we have to talk about the final three episodes of season one of the Star Wars original series and or which, again, I will reiterate, if you've been listening <laughs> to the podcast over the few weeks, this shit is incredible. You better watch this show, God, show has man. done so many things that I did not expect it to. It's come completely out of nowhere. And as a person who was not anticipating this story at all from a character that I had no interest in, <laughs> in learning more about, I mean, this show has just come in and hit me like, uh, a ton of bricks and so we now finally have the final three episodes of season one and so this story is wrapped up there will be a season two of andor that's going to come out in a couple of years they are working early in development on season two now and that will be the final season as they fastly progress towards the events of rogue one because this is a prequel to a prequel and so it's 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 in an interesting space in terms of the type of story that it's telling but we've been talking about it over the past few weeks here and so we got to wrap up everything that we saw in these most three recent episodes but before we talk about spoilers and do all the details and all the major events that occurred over these final three episodes just generally i want to pass it over to you to get your high level big picture thoughts what did you think about these final three episodes of andor and ultimately and maybe even more importantly was it a satisfying conclusion to the season one for you I had no idea that we would be in the spot we are in right now, man. Andor, Andor, Andor. Uh, the expectation was so weird <laughs> surrounding this TV show, man. It was weird. But again, when when Disney, Star Wars, Lucasfilm, and they tell us that season two is already shooting, I'm like, okay, they have to. Ha there has to be some gold here. Like, you just don't come out the gate before releasing season one and be like, ah, season two already filming kind of type thing but after watching it after getting this 12 episodes i get it i get it i get it i get it this is this remains one of the most mature pieces of star wars that i've ever watched it's not the most mature piece of star wars that i've ever seen and honestly that alone helps propel such a story that we've never seen before that i've never seen before within this universe and a universe that is filled with darkness there's there's so much about it sometimes that we've never got the chance to talk about and or gives you a chance to talk about those things it gives you a chance to talk about the little people that we never talk about we talk about marvel tv shows and we all we usually talk about some oh look at that big battle in the sky what do the people on the ground think about that and or is that and or talks about the people on the ground and what they have to go through every day and what bullshit they're dealing with with the villains of the star wars universe in in Every week, man, they find a way to somehow subvert an expectation of what I thought was going to happen in the show. I've now, season two, there's nothing in my mind. Like, I just need to throw everything out the window because every time I think something's going to happen, something else happens. And, and, and that makes, for me, that makes for good TV. When you don't know what's going to go down, you're surprised about it, and it's good. And it services the characters, and it services everything um that's going on and and yeah it's just a good tv man it really is skip you could throw the star wars out the window and be like it's just good tv it's a good tv show you don't even have to talk about star wars anything it's just good and, and for that uh i have to say i'm still in a great spot um when it comes to andor i can tell season two will be different the ending promises that that it will be different i love that about it um but it can again be argued that andor season one has surpassed any kind of Star Wars TV show content ever. 
it can be argued. It can. It's there. It has reached that point. And in in and I think anybody who wants to argue that is in the right or in in and they have the right to do so. So I I'm so excited for what's to for what season two is going to bring. But man, I absolutely enjoyed and in in can cherish this first season. And these last three episodes really was a nice, I think, cherry on top to um yeah, to round out the season. These final three only reaffirmed the the one thing that I've been really sort of grappling with as it relates to this show and just thinking a lot about. And and I think that Andor has presented us with the answer to a question that I feel like has circulated a, across many different types of Star Wars story, many different media. And that one question is, why should we be so afraid of the Empire? Mm-hmm. Why fear the Empire? Why are they so dangerous? And it's been communicated mostly to a degree from a very high level as it relates to Emperor Palpatine, Darth Vader. We we see how dangerous they are, but they are at the top of this massive, massive, massive oppressive force throughout the galaxy and or showcases how many small pieces and how many components make up this massive, just ridiculously large-scale organization that has taken over so many facets and components of of the galaxy that it's really kind of hard to comprehend. And I said this a few weeks ago when we were talking about Andor, but George Lucas has always noted that he was very much inspired by what occurred during the Holocaust and World War II with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. That that very much inspired his creation of the Empire. Mm -hmm. And, And now Andor has communicated that on a level that I just don't think we've ever seen before. There's a degree of danger that we experience and a degree of tension in, in all of these episodes that we just never quite see out of what the empire is supposed to ultimately represent in the galaxy. And then even more importantly, how forces across these different worlds and these different communities rise up against that, against that oppressive wall that's been built all throughout these different places in these planets across the galaxy. And just the back and forth between that over these past 10 or so weeks that we've gotten these 12 episodes has just been so masterfully done. This is excellent Star Wars on almost every level, and 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 I'm just I'm really just kind of astounded at, at how successful this really is for me, and how much it worked, and how much they they were able to pull off in the show. Because as you said, it is about these people on the ground, and it's about those folks who like never get the recognition mm-hmm. for the work that they did in building this rebellion. We've seen Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Princess Leia get showered with recognition right. and titles and shiny medals. We've seen all of that stuff. Like they they are the faces of the rebellion. But what about those thousands, if not millions, yes, millions actually, of people that die that can be considered heroic because of their their willingness to step up in the face of tyranny mm-hmm. and, and go directly against it. And and that's what Andor is about. It's it's about creating that tension and, and really living in that moment, which we, I mean, just the reality of it is just as humans, we can, we can relate so much to it because we're seeing it right now and we've seen it all throughout human history. It's, it's not like a new thing. This, this is just a part of like human history, the really kind of inhumane ways that we treat each other. And it's sad to say, but when you see it just done so well in a, just culturally resonant and in such a well-known IP, it, it gives me hope for large-scale IP storytelling. And 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 I live in a time where I'm super pessimistic. I don't have high hopes for any of this shit mm-hmm. when it relates to like Star Wars and Marvel and anime, like all these things that come out and, and they're based off of things that we already know and there's reboots and remakes and prequels and sequels. I'm always very pessimistic about it. But when you see something like this done so well, it just it just I just can't help but have hope that 
we have creators and filmmakers out there who have visions and have stories that they want to tell and that you can tell many, many, many different types of stories within the framework of a pre-existing IP within the framework of the Star Wars universe. Just because we have like stuff that's geared more towards children over here, that doesn't mean that we can't tell this super mature story exactly. for adults over on this other end. And I love that. I love the fact that this is something that we can enjoy and really relish in. And so absolutely tre tremendous for me. I think it's up there in terms of best Star Wars ever. TV, movies, games, whatever you want to say, I'm putting it up against anything at this point. That's how successful I think it was. But Let's talk about the details of these most recent three episodes that concluded this first arc of Andor, at least within the season one context. And we got to start with the 10th episode, which was entitled One Way Out. The last time we were talking about the series, we spent a significant amount of time talking about Narkina 5, the prison mm. that Andor ended up in. And we saw the appearance of Kino Loy, a brand new character. Um, and, and, and sort of that, that, that back and forth that they both had to deal with in terms of their place within this prison and, and finding out a very, very harsh truth in a dark reality in the idea that they were never going to get out. They are thinking and operating under the pretense that they will one day be free. And Andy Serkis as Kino Loy is just trying to do his job. He's just trying to get these shifts out of the way. He's counting down the days to when he can get released. And we find out that that's not happening. They are killing people within these prisons, and if they're not killing you, they're just going to relocate you to a different prison mm -hmm. to finish out the rest of your sentence, which is going to be the natural rest of your life. And so it's really, really dark. These are serving as concentration camps, ultimately, just as, as factories for these prisoners to build things. And so episode 10 presents us with what we were expecting to happen which ultimately was a big prison breakout episode. Yeah, Almost the entire episode is about the breakout. We see Cassie and Andor finally enact his plan. They burst a water pipe. It freezes the floors and turns off that really crazy mechanism that they have to burn people mm -hmm. you know, with their, with their feet on the floor. And they ultimately are able to just get everybody within the prison, which we find out it's like 5,000 of them, to just rally against all of the troops, all of the guards, and break out of the prison. But it results in a really heartbreaking scene because Andy Serkis, who helps lead this rebellion, this this little mini rebellion within the prison, can't swim. And it's in an isolated body of water. And so he has no way of getting out. We don't know what his fate is ultimately, but I just want to hear your thoughts. Like, what did you think about this huge prison breakout sequence? And and what do you think is the fate of Kino Loy as a character? Did he die? Did he just did he just go back to his cell? You know, is it just all back to the status quo? What what happened to him at the end there? Man, uh, there was just this episode was really cracking. There was just so much, so much tension in everything. I really liked it, man. Um, something about prison breaks <laughs> that gets that gets the the blood pumping. It's like, oh shoot, how is this going to go down? And we see how I'd say realistic it goes down. You have a prison break like that, people are not going to make it, and a lot of them didn't make it. You know, you see at the end of uh, episode 12 he, he's asking Andor like how many people do you think really made it out of there like what if we don't only two they just don't know and that's like the darkness mm -hmm. I think of this whole thing it's like where yeah you just don't know it's 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 really scary but that's real and I, I really like that about it because there is only one way out which is the the the, the really sucky part of it all I think I think he I think he might be alive I really do I think I don't know if he's just still in that prison. I don't know if 
maybe off camera he tried maybe somehow season two we see like a flashback and he did make it to shore somehow somebody helped him you know what i mean later on down. i don't know but i I actually love that they kind of didn't tie it up because they can now they can do whatever they want they can leave it how they mm-hmm. want they can bring them back if they want but it's andy circus at the end of the day and so i i, I really love uh that they did that but even more than that i love the concept the fact that you've been trapped here for this long and you're one time that you have to get out of this prison and you can't swim. Of course they'd put this prison in the middle of water where people are, are forced to swim. If you want to hide something, put it on an island. I don't know if that's a quote, but I just made it up. Like, if you want to hide something, <laughs> put it on an island. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you don't want something to survive for a decent amount, of, put it on an island. Like, it's 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 such a creative way to say the prison is more than just the prison. It's it's outside of it. You know what I mean? Like they, it's an it's just a crazy way to say the empire is even more powerful than outside of this thing that we're watching. Of uh, was it Arkina Five? It's just yeah. a powerful think, way. Think about all the big prisons we see in in popular media. Azkaban in, in Harry mm-hmm. Potter is in an isolated body of water. The Raft in Marvel is in an isolated body of water. It's a great way to say like, yeah, you can try to get out, but uh, we don't need no barbed <laughs> wire and fences here. If you if you if you gonna get out of here, you got to know how to swim. Which you know the odds are fifty fifty at that point. Absolutely, and that's what makes it so scary, especially when people have to succumb to it. Like he he got to that moment and was like, bro, I'm defeated. I can't swim. Like, he did all that fighting, inspired all those men to jump off. He's part of the reason for the rebellion, and he can't do it. Again, I, I'm harping on that moment, but it was just such a big moment for me. I was just like, that, that shit's tight to me. I was like, this is really cool um, that they did that. So, yeah, man, I don't know I don't know what, what where he is or what happened to him, but I, I, I think that was some real shit being said in that episode. Um, in, in Kino Loy, man, I hope, I hope to see him again uh maybe there's a another breakout maybe they do tell people about what's going on in the prison and he's one of the people that's still left back there and there's another kind of rebellion effort to go get those people back you know what i mean maybe that is a thing we don't know but it would be cool um i think to see uh, uh that resolve again even if we don't i think it's cool too but yeah i i, I really love the prison break moment I really, really hope he survived. Andy Serkis was so good in these past few episodes. And so if they can figure out a way to time into season two, which that might already be written. But as you said, they can just kind of do whatever they want. I hope he comes back. What I really loved about this whole sequence, just seeing the tension build, you know, over the course of time, like there's genuine fear on the side of Cassian Andor and Kino mm-hmm. Loy. Like this is not going to be easy. As you said, you know, people are going to get injured and die because of this and you have one shot at this. There there are no do-overs. And if you fail, the result is probably automatic death. They are going to do exactly what they did to those 100 men that were on the other floor. And so there's that really pivotal moment in which Kino is kind of in the room with those guards and they have him at gunpoint. And you see Cassie and he has to push and push and mm-hmm. push for Kino to actually go over the intercom and make the announcement. That's not an easy thing to do. Like any any of us would be fearful of our lives in that situation and so i just love that they did that and then the flip side of that fear is seeing how the guards react to the rebellion that happens in the prison one of my favorite shots from the episode is when they finally do get everybody to rally behind kino loy and cassie and andor and they're heading for the exit and they're chanting one way out you get that shot of the imperial officers locked in a room and they look scared for their lives (laughs) they they didn't expect any of this shit they're just trying to do their job they think it's another day at work 
yes, they work on behalf of the Empire, so they've, they've definitely made their choice. And so I don't think necessarily that much empathy is going to be imparted on what they're going through at this moment. But these are human beings at the end of the day. And so they are now on the receiving end of people that are willing to probably kill them in order to escape from this prison. And so I just love those small moments of being able to see that stuff. And it was just really, really well done. Now, at the end of this episode, I want to talk about Luthen, who I think it's pretty solidified after these three episodes, has become not only my favorite character in this show, bar none, (laughs) but one of my favorite characters in Star Wars ever. This dude and what Stellan Skarsgård is doing is just another level. Killing it. But this episode ends with a monologue from Luthen to Lonnie, who's a rebel informant. Lonnie has been working with the, the I, I think it's the IBS or the IS, ISB, the mm-hmm. ISB. ISB. L- Lonnie is working inside the ISB, but he's working on behalf of the rebellion. So he's sort of a mole, getting information and passing it back to Luthen. And so you see Lonnie very much scared for his life, but he also kind of realize, he realizes that he's trapped in the situation that he's in. Like, there's really only a couple of ways that this can go. Mm-hmm. You're going to be an informant. You're going to be working on behalf of the rebellion. You might die. It's actually very likely you'll die. Or... Something might happen that can that can gain you your freedom, but he's feeling the pressure. And we get that moment at the end of the episode that closed out episode 10. Luthen delivers a monologue, which I think might be the best delivered lines of dialogue in this entire series, which really illuminates who he is and what he's been dealing with. Things that we've been talking about, just the darkness that mm-hmm. exists within Luthen as a character and just this idea of being trapped in the position that he set up for himself. And he had a line here that I just want to read off that really just stuck with me. He said, quote, what is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see, end quote. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Like, this guy has such a high level of self-awareness. He knows exactly what he is. He knows that he's sacrificing people's lives in order to further the cause of the rebellion. And he knows he'll probably not see the other side of this war. He's going to perish before they can actually see the fruits of the work that he's helped build in, ter- in terms of, you know, rising this rebellion to, 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 to face the empire and to overcome all the oppression across the galaxy. I just thought that everything Stellan Skarsgård did from, a, from an emotional standpoint in that moment just was, it was an absolute home run. It, it really, I think it really succinctly delivered what the premise of the show is really about, what it takes and what sacrifice really means when you're talking about war, especially a war to the scale and to the degree of what they're dealing with here. Yeah, it's, it's, I love that. There's just so many implications here, too, about what Lonnie and Luthen are talking about that do hint at the original trilogy, you know, that is like that's that's the result. This is the this is he's in in, in our time being in watching this in this present tense. He's he's really telling us all the great crazy shit he has to go through. And then in my head, I am picturing the Luke's and Leia's in <laughs> and, and, and Han Solo's like, damn. Did y'all ever talk about any, you know what I mean? Like, did we ever discuss this, you know, kind of tight feeling? And it, it really is so dark. And I'm just, even as Luther was talking, I'm thinking about Lonnie's position. Like, at the end of the, what made the end of the monologue so scary is that Lonnie didn't say anything. The door closed and he went down the <laughs> elevator. I was like, damn, he don't get to talk back. Like, I was like, is that the end of the conversation? What do you say after that shit? What Jesus. do you say after it, man? He was just like, well, you know, like, it's 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 yeah it's just crazy to see how much yeah the, like we could talk about sacrifice but to see it it's just always a different thing like to talk about it and to see it is always a different thing the way the 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 
the choice that Lonnie, in some ways, now has to make after you know Luther delivers his speech, and now he's like, "Guess I go back to doing what I'm doing." You're right, you know, kind of type thing. In 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 yeah, man, it's just such. In a lot of ways, Andor is a blurry picture in all the right ways because you don't know what that sacrifice is going to be or what it looks like. Um, and 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 I think for Luther, so I think somewhat paint a blurry picture on purpose. Him saying this is. It's all going to be muddled, but my sacrifice, you think I don't know what sacrifice is? Man, it's it's just powerful stuff, man. It was it was a definitely an amazing way, I think, to end the episode. Yeah, su- super, super emotional, because that, that's where you really get to see inside Luthen. I mean, there have been many questionable moments where you just kind of look at him like, damn, dude, really? Like, we're just going to sacrifice whoever just because but as we've said numerous times in talking about this show when you're talking about war Mm -hmm. and they're doing so in such a mature way you have to realize what those sacrifices ultimately look like and that does come down to human lives like it's 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 really that damning and it's that dark that we are dealing with people that'll lose their lives and sometimes that has to be a part of the chess game that you're playing that there are going to be pawns in order to service the bigger players in the future, which Luthen again, is very self-aware, he probably won't even make it that far. He is here for a very specific purpose. He is also pushing and pushing and pushing people really kind of beyond their limits. He, we saw it earlier this season with Cassian Andor. Like he has to get him to a place where he truly feels uncomfortable, and he's very much responsible for the development of Cassian, I think as much as anybody, mm-hmm. where, where you have a guy who's willing to push and go go the extra mile and go the extra distance more than anybody. And that's what the rebellion has needed this entire time. And they need to see how crazy it's going to have to get in order for them to actually make change and make progress. Because at this point in the story, the the Empire has been ruling with an iron fist for what? Like 28, 29 years? There's yeah. five more years until until Rogue One. And I think the ultimate reign was about 33 to 35 years. And so they have a ways to go, but they've been they've been living in this world for as long as they can pretty much remember. So it's kind of crazy. We're not done talking about Luthen though, because in episode 11, Daughter of Ferrix, he has one of the most badass sequences that we've seen in, in a long time. There's a moment when he's on the way back to Coruscant and he's in his hall craft. He's, you know, he's thinking he's just going to be able to go back to Coruscant. But then this Imperial Patrol comes behind him because they're trying to get him to identify, like, where are you going? Who are you? What are you doing here? And we see this guy use all the gadgets and gizmos within his (laughs) ship to ultimately defeat this Imperial Patrol ship in a way that was just, I mean, my God, what the hell was going on here? The dude had, is it a lightsaber in his ship? Like, is that what they had there? I mean, he's able to repel the magnetic force that was holding him back. I mean, he just goes above and beyond you can tell that he's just so prepared for something like this to go down (laughs) to be able to evade the forces of the empire that he just does so so casually and just so efficiently it just kind of it kind of blew me away i really i really didn't expect that from him because everything we've seen out of luthan has been conversations and him working behind the scenes and him you know sort of orchestrating the pieces now we got to see the guy actually fight for his life and do so in which in, in a way that's really threatened and he has to he has to use every resource available to get out of the situation that he's in what did you think about just seeing that whole thing unfold man i always had a feeling that that oh boy was like this man i always had that feeling as soon as they the day he met andor the day he met cassie and i was like I'm sure this guy is dangerous. I mean, he always has on a trench coat, bro. I'm like, there's no way this dude 
is not as deadly as we think he is. Um, I it, it it was dope to see, man, because it was always one of those things I wanted to see. It, it was more like it was one of those like when you finally see the commander fight, you know, was, uh, like you could be command somebody all day, but what can you do? Kind of type thing. And we finally, you know, got that moment where he's he's we we see why he is kind of the man he is in a lot of different ways. Why he why. You know, we talk about him maneuvering in 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 grayness the same way Andor has to, but to to actually, uh, uh, you know, see it see it come to life, I think was really dope. So, um, not too much to add to what you said, bro. It was just really tight. I was like, yes, Luther, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm looking for. Like, I want to see you, um, um, you know, do because it was like, I mean, these are what Tie Fighters, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, very very well crafted. Oof tie fighters that are very fast like we know tie fighters in star wars are super fucking fast and the way he just chopped them down so so effortlessly was was wild wild bro i mean the the ship itself is nice i mean shields was coming up the laser i was i was just it was just really dope um and i I hope we get more space fights (laughs) like that soon because there's been a couple space fights in star wars you're like that's cool you know what i mean like "Ah, that was okay but that was that was pretty cool to see like the i think the um the innovativeness I think of the whole sequence was really cool. So, yeah, I hope they do some more of that in season two. Yeah, no doubt. I found that episode 11, Daughter of Ferrix, was was a little bit slower compared to recent episodes mm-hmm. because it does a lot to set up the finale, Rick's Road. And so in episode 11, I think the, the pieces are just kind of moving in play. We see, obviously, Luthen is trying to get back to Coruscant. We also see Daedra, who we've talked a lot about, starting to put her plan into motion. And they, they're, they're, they're going to go to Ferrix, the planet which, in which Cassian is from, to try to capture him that way because they're going to use the death of his mother as a way to lure him into their into their control. And, and, and then on the opposite side of that, we're seeing Mon Mothma also still dealing with the financial pressures that she's been experiencing. And by the time we get to episode 12, I mean, it just coalesces into this really huge epic moment on Ferrix. But before we get to that, I do want to spend just a little bit of time talking about Mon Mothma. A little bit of a decreased amount of screen time mm-hmm. in these last couple of episodes, sure. but still really important stuff that happened. I mean, we see, we see, we, we saw at least the, 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 the collaboration that she sort of created with Tay Calma. Um, I think that's his name. I can't remember. But just trying to get out of this financial pressure that she's dealing with. The fact that now, like, these funds that she's been funneling into the rebellion, people are starting to take notice. And we're seeing the walls kind of close in on Mon Mothma. And she's starting to have to resort to resources and people in places that she might not have necessarily gone to. Mm -hmm. But what I loved is just how smart we know Mon Mothma is, how ahead of the curve she is there's that scene in episode 12 where she's riding in the back of her vehicle and her husband gets into the car and she strikes up this fake argument about his gambling Mm. because she knows the driver is listening in on the conversation and so she already is a she's a way ahead of the game she knows that the isb has started to infiltrate pretty much everything around her to get information and so she just makes up this bullshit argument like yeah you're gambling again Go to go to Candlebite if you're going to be doing that shit, giving them fake information so that they can be led astray. Ultimately, I just love the fact that they they continue to make her as smart as she is and she's just as aware as she is. But we still we still feel that pressure closing in on her. And I know last time we talked about, well, will Senator Palpatine pop up because this is definitely rolling up to his level. He did not pop up, of course. I still think it's very possible in season two Mm -hmm. that we'll see him. But I think it's just going to show like. Yeah, this this is some serious shit that she's dealing with. So much so that her daughter is now introduced to this young boy as a way to like 
use the resource from this guy that she meets. Like this is this is his his compromise. This is the exchange. Like, yeah, I'll give you money. I'll help you out with this with this problem you're dealing with. But uh, yeah, maybe our two kids they can meet up and we can start to we can start to figure out what this what this next generation looks like. Which it's fucked up, and you see how mm-hmm. demoralizing that is for her. But she's kind of desperate at this point, also. Yeah, she is. She has so much. We last time we talked about Endor, we talked about the pressure that's on her as kind of this public figure who does is surrounded by, uh, uh, again more more than the empire, but just the political nature of it all. And now it's like, really, this whole TV show is like this. But she's in the middle of a spy movie, <laughs> and now she's like has to find her way out of 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 her situation. And I love I do love that moment where she had, does start with the fake argument. I was like, oh, I see what's going on here. You know, kind of type. I didn't catch it the first time. I'm like. Mm-hmm. Did I miss something? Like what? What? What gambling? Now went back and I was like, oh, I see what you're doing mm-hmm. now. Yeah, no, it was it was super clever because, man, I I it, uh, it that shit could have swept up switched up so easily or uh, messed up so easily right there. She could have slipped up and said something crazy to her husband. You know what I mean? I don't know, but I love that her. I, I love that they're showing us how keen to detail she is, how good she is at listening and paying attention into reading body language, all of that. She's just good at, at a lot of those things. And so mine, like you said, a little less screen time, but the moment she did have was like, it made her, They gave, the moment she, they did give her was like, oh, you kind of went up in the badass scale for me right there. Like, oh, I didn't know you had that in you, you know, kind of type thing. I was like, oh shit, I didn't know you could do that. So I, I, I thought that stuff was dope too. And just seeing, she low-key is pimping out. <laughs> she low-key pimping out her daughter. But like, yeah <laughs> it is what, it, what it is basically. like it is what it is though i guess like it, it's it's not that bad i guess i mean her daughter could always say no <laughs> you know or like sure you know but uh she she she's doing what she can that's that's part of her sacrifice is her kind of right, kind of right. giving her daughter you know to, to to something else um but yeah man this woman is still so smart her talking about her accounts and what she the money she's been moving and in She's just doing a great job of 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 being a such a big part of this rebellion that again, just stuff we've never seen before. It's like, oh, you did that. Okay. I respect you even more than I did before. Yeah, no doubt about it. Now, in in the finale, in Ferrix Road, again, all roads sort of lead to the funeral of Marva, Cassian's mother, who we found out at the episode end of episode eleven that his mother had passed away, which clearly emotionally affected him in a really significant way. He he's been gone for so long, and now to come back and find out your mother is has passed is it's really hurting him. But there's going to be this this public funeral essentially, and so Daedra is going to use this as an opportunity to try to lure in Andor because they've been after him. It's been this whole cat and mouse situation this entire season, and I just love that they organically found a way for all the major players to end up here because also Luthen shows up and you have Bix who's you know sort of been been captured you know Cyril pops up like everybody just pulls up Mm -hmm. so it just makes all the sense in the world and is it's the perfect device for a finale but even before we got there sort of the lead up to it there was a really keen moment that I I just loved and it was the it was the manifesto from Nemec that Mm. Cassian accesses in which he finds out this whole idea of what this rebellion and what the what the empire really what what the empire really represents and and Nimic had just so many so many really just gems that he dropped in that thing. He said that freedom is a pure idea. He talked about tyranny requiring co- constant effort and and the fact that there's going to be leaks and cracks because of that constant effort because of the grip that they're trying to use to tighten so much around the forces across the galaxy that there's just going to be no way that they're going to be able to maintain that level that level of intimidation because of just 
the natural idea that this this will require a, a break in the system. Somebody's going to find a way through, and then ultimately, there's so many rebellions and so many armies across the galaxy that are doing these small things that it's just going to add up and it's going to add up and it's going to add up. I just really love that moment. It was it was bef- it was the calm before the storm, and I think a great reminder for Cassian to hear those words to remind him like this is what you're doing it for. Like yeah, you might die. This might all be for nothing for you personally but this is still contributing to the larger idea of what has to happen for the empire to be taken down you know i'm glad you brought that moment up because one thing i will argue about probably episode 10 and a little bit of 11 in general is that cassian before prison and after the prison kind of feel like the same guy but it's something about that moment there that gets us to the, the the end with him and Luthen. That's like, I mean, you could kill me. <laughs> I agree. Or you yeah. could just take me in. But yeah, it, it was like that felt more like a, a changing thing for him. That the the prison break was him helping other people get out. Not, you know, not not a lot of character change, but that it was something about that moment that you were just talking about that was like, man, this this might be it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, this 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 is the reason why I do some of the things that I do or why I do the thing that I do. And so I really, I really also enjoyed that moment, and I think it, it, it did help. Uh, uh, again, lead to the end of the episode and kind of maneuver what was going on and all of the noisiness in, in what's happening in the last episode. Good noise, I thought it was really cool scenes and stuff, but of, of, of what we were meant to take away, I think, from some of the ends of, of, of this last episode. Yeah, and and Luthen has been showing us this the entire season. Now we just have this one moment from from Nimic's manifesto where they can just tell it to us plainly. Because what's interesting about this manifesto is like what follows it immediately, and the fact that the Empire is just so oblivious to the fact that the Anto Krieger character that mm. Luthen and, and Saul have been talking about. He was served to them on a silver platter. They thought that they had a coup and that they captured a really important individual, but that was Luthen's plan all along mm-hmm. to serve up Anto Krieger, distracting them essentially, and 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 their thoughts and their plan to kind of box in everybody on Ferrix and and to capture Cassian and blew up in their face because they they were just unfocused and thrown off by all these different pieces and things that were happening. Very much like what happened on Aldani with the heist. Like they, they spent so much time and attention focusing on that, that they just completely missed mm. everything else that was happening. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And I think, mm-hmm. I think that that stuff is just like, again, this is the, this is the point and the purpose of this show. And, and, and the point in, in showcasing that these deaths are going to be inevitable to this ultimate battle and the cost of, of the rebellion yeah. demands these really horrible sacrifices. But, but in, in order to prioritize whatever the greater good is going to be, these things have to happen in order for those next big steps to occur. And and finally, we, finally, it just boils over because at the funeral, Marva, Cassian's mother, has this voice message that she leaves behind. It's like her own manifesto, mm-hmm. essentially, in which she's reflective about her life. She's somewhat regretful, it felt like, in her tone. Yeah. But then by the end of her speech, it becomes full-on just pure rebel in that moment. Like, we... We see her emotionally just transition from being this kind of regretful, sad person who is now reconciling and, and, and confronting the end of her life. But then by the end of it, she's like, fight these bastards, step up, like go after them, because that's what I would have been doing mm-hmm. if I had my life back. If I could go back and do it differently, I would be out fighting these bastards every day. And I just love what Fiona Shaw did in that moment. It was yeah. it was her best moment in this series to just see her own that 
and to get people so riled up that everybody was like, oh yeah, the shit's on now. We're fucking, we're fucking y'all up. And and I think it's 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 just so well done because Ferrix like it seems like this this place that's strong on community. Like these people are mm-hmm, close sure. with each other because it's it's like this industrial place. They all work together. And so I think it made all the sense in the world that everybody would just say, yeah, we've had enough. We're going after y'all right now. Yeah, there was actually a moment where we we hear um, about her death. And I was like, did y'all just kill Fiona Shaw off camera? Like she's way too talented for us to be to be doing exactly. this. Um, but then that happens. They come up with the you know the the hologram, and and like you said, what felt like a manifesto. And I was like, oh, this is this is this is part part of the reason why they did that because she's allowed to shine. I think in that moment, it's also interesting. I seen some earlier today that was like, well, we, we hear say fight the empire, but somebody was like, the original cut was actually fuck the empire. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> oh. I, didn't, I didn't know that. Um, which which is crazy, but I really do like release the Andor cut. I I'm see that weak. One. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I really like um that moment though, because it's very even in the show of Andor. Do we ever see? Let's go fight these niggas. Like you know, what I mean? like nobody ever just says it. They kind of mm-hmm. do it in 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 episode four. The road, you know what I mean? Like they kind of try to get there but no one is ever gonna say let's go get these bastards you know what i mean like it took cap a while to say (laughs) stuff like that like you know what i mean like they just be fighting and so i i I like that the moment that they give her where they're like no this and i also do like that they gave her a little bit of regret i love her her speech because she's like even while we sleep empire is still doing crazy shit you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. we can be as angry as we want but we're not doing nothing we just been sitting around and and there is the sickness in the in the galaxies whatever she called it you know what i mean i was like man this woman's spitting i thought i was in the crowd i was snapping <laughs> it's like hell yeah but it's 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 it was i think it was a really dope moment cuz what's always cool about stories like this and talking about a rebellion and talking about yeah anything like this is you can pinpoint any moment that actually starts a rebellion you know what I'm saying? You could it could be the 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 Aldani heist. It can be uh, uh, Marva right here giving a speech, and everybody goes haywire. It could be Cassian getting off the ship. You know, getting out of prison. It could be any of those things. And so I really love that about about the nature of things like this and about a series like that. But it this they were like, let's add another one for you guys to think about. Is this speech by Marva potentially something that? got us to where we are in 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 the original series of star wars you know what i'm saying it's it's crazy to to to, to just conceptualize that and to think about that um so yeah man i really love that moment i thought it was dope no doubt i think um you know again a constant theme is just seeing how much it takes to push these people to to finally just go over the edge and and confront the evil that's in front of them that's just been so intimidating it seems insurmountable and and, mm-hmm. and of course that makes all the sense in the world but these repetitive moments that continuously happen what cassian did to kino what the manifesto from nimic did for cassian and then marva ultimately what she does for this community of people on ferrix i mean they just they completely rise up and become defiant they just needed that one push there's enough anger there there's enough resentment there that they finally hear from this person who was revered you know within the community that they're like yeah this is it this is it right here we're gonna fight we're gonna undermine the power that, that that's been you know held over our heads for so long now and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna fight back and, and beat up stormtroopers and throw bombs and just everything and, and and then on the flip side of that again the fear 
that exists on the part of the Imperial officers in the Empire, we see that perfectly communicated by Daedra. She is fucking terrified. She almost gets trampled. Cyril saves her, you know, and is able to, you know, get her to safety. But we just see how scared she is. And and again, that's another thing we just never see in Star Wars because they're so intimidating and their faces are always with an evil scowl and they're working behind the scenes and mm-hmm. moving boards and pu- pushing buttons and giving orders. <laughs> it's like it's always that 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 Im- that intimidation that's really far away. You know, you're never next to it. But now that she's on the battleground, it, it, her life could be at stake, too. And I just love that we saw that. Um I think by the end of this episode, it does end off with Cassian and Luthen, you know, sort of circling back to the two characters that that, that this is really all about. And you 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 just alluded to it, but that 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 pivotal final scene between the two, these two confronting each other, Cassian has reached a boiling point, and he tells Luthen, you know, either kill me or take me in. And I think it's just so pivotal for what we see in Cassian. We talked last time about Rogue One sort of being his redemption. Mm-hmm. This is him. I think finally embracing what the reality of the situation is like he can he can no longer just like be a bystander and evade what's happening with the empire like he can no longer just like idly sit by right like he's ready to go all in so he's either ready to die just for what's happening right now or he's going to fully embrace what the rebellion is and become become a key component of it and I just love the fact that we finally reached that moment between these two and 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 I think Luthen you see that smirk at the end. Yeah. He's like, "That's where we had to get. This is this is what needed to happen." Now I now now you understand what the big picture is, and I just I just love that that was the final thing that we saw in this season. Man, that smirk was everything. I was like, "That's good acting." Um, there. What I what I also really love about this is Cassian coming to a point that he realizes there's nothing else for him to do. Like in terms of like, this is me. Him him realizing. Before, he was just picking up jobs. He's, like, trying to get some money here, get some money there. Now, he's just gotten to a point where he is, like, not only is this the only thing. He said, he's, like, I'm good at this, bro. He said, this is this is what I do. Like, I think over the course of the season, the, the past 11 episodes has led up to this moment for Cassie and Andor to go, no, nah, I'm pretty good at this shit, bro. Like <laughs> the Aldani heist, breaking people out of prison. I mean, all of it. He, this all yeah. led up to that moment for him to go. You, there is nothing else for me. For him to go, you gonna have to kill me. If if I'm not with you, I'm not doing anything else. This is it for me. And I I, I just really like that about it too. It's like a, it's just a that that's the character. I remember I told you there's really nothing after prison and before. That's the part of the prison that's like okay, yeah, maybe there is a little something. You know, there's a little. Mm-hmm. He he did realize. I I was also involved in breaking people out of prison. I was also involved on the this heist in Aldani. I was also involved in subverting and dodging the the empire for this long. I did that, and it's like a he's like, bro, you you came here to kill me, but what's good, <laughs> you know, kind of to like what's what's really going on, and and so I I do like that moment because it's it's not only you know Luthen saying, oh yeah, this dude is ready. It's Andor finally saying. I think I'm ready. I've been through a lot of bullshit, but I've gotten through every single one of them things. I've had my past is dark. I have killed some people, but I bet you. But every time what I do like about his greatness and doors greatness is every time he does make a decision to kill somebody, it does. He thinks it's for the better. You know, it's never him being malintent. Like, I'm just going to kill this guy just because I'm going to kill him. It's always him. It's always self. Uh, uh, 
self not I want to keep wanting to say discipline, but it's it's, it's always self um, defense or it's always mm. you know him trying to get out of a sticky situation, and and yeah, it's it's just a good moment. I think it was a great way to end the season. I was like, yep, they're on the same page, and it's also like a realization like nobody is quite like me than you. Both of them can say that to each other. Yeah. <laughs> kind of tight moment. They see each other. They see each other in themselves right in now. Themselves. You know? They have this chip on their shoulders. Exactly. Because you could you could age up. You could age up Andor right now and be like, Luthen, is that you? <laughs> kind of type thing. Like you know what I mean. <laughs> right, like yeah. the the craftiness, the way they maneuver, the the really they're slithery people. And so it's just yeah. I think they seen each other in that moment too. And that's what that's why Arsenal that smirk just meant everything. That smirk meant a lot. It was like you get yourself. We get each other, and and that's it. You know, now let's now let's get to work. And so I thought that was really dope. Yeah, and they kind of have what they need to really kickstart this rebellion in a big way. Now we probably got the one singular piece of what could maybe be considered fan service in this show with the post credit scene. Even though I don't consider it fan service because it it ties into all this shit. Mm-hmm. We speculated last time about what they were building in Arkina Five. What were they constructing? <laughs> in that prison turns out you were right it is indeed the death star or at least pieces of the death star and i know you talked about just the wild almost unconceivable nature of just like what that means for cassian as a character the fact that he has a he has a hand in constructing the very thing that causes demise as we know in rogue one right like he is building pieces to the machine and to the weapon that ultimately takes him out and so we see at the end of this series at least at the end of season one we see those bots uh constructing at least the laser beam section of the Death Star um, using those connective. I think what they were building in Arkina Five is connecting all of the all of the, the 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 pieces of that of that laser, and so it's just like pulling all that stuff together. But what do you think about just seeing that, like finally seeing the Death Star reveal, and how how much of a how much of of a factor do you think the Death Star is going to be in the next season? Because we know next season is going to have to actually move at a much faster pace. They yep. still have four years to cover up until the events of Rogue One. This really only covered about a year, and so I think we're going to see more significant time jumps happen over the course of the next season. But how big of a role do you see the Death Star playing into the story that they're going to tell, and do you envision that the the force and the grip of the Empire is only going to tighten more after what we saw in the season finale? Oh, yeah, man. I just... I, we've been talking about Palpatine showing up. We've been... It's... I, I think there's, there's, there's going to be a moment next season where... That you have to you have to feel uh, uh, the force somewhere in terms of man a Sith is going something like you know what I mean like they they pushing too many buttons for us not to see a Palpatine us not to see a Vader even it's they're pushing too many buttons and I think one thing that I think is tremendous um, um, post credit scene because it it adds so much like one thing that this show is doing actively and constantly is. It's not only adding connective tissue and making Rogue One stronger. Now I'm gonna watch Rogue One like and order is fighting against what to do what the thing you know he was in prison helping do you know what I'm saying like it's 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 not only strengthening that but it's also strengthening like really what it means to get to the original Star Wars what it means for that of course we see at the end of Rogue One you know it's opening of, of episode four but now episode four is starting to mean just so much more like it's adding mm-hmm. that's how you know you have a good project when you're adding to things that already exist and that, that are already beloved 
if I can watch Andor and go watch Star Wars episode four and be like, damn, a new hope might be even better, <laughs> you know, kind of type thing. Cause there's more weight behind it now. Like I can feel what Cassian went through in order for, for all this to go down. Like, and, 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 and that's why I think it's a good, you know, post credit scene to be able to think, um, and, and, and feel all those things in that way. I don't, I don't know what it all means for the next season. I do think, like you said, it's, we're going to have to speed some stuff up. They Cassian and and Luthen can't keep pressing buttons and expect some some Sith not to start knocking on the door. Like the, some right. heavy breathing or some force choking is going to be had somewhere. <laughs> like <laughs> it's 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 time. It it really is. Um, and Your I think lack that, of faith concerns me. <laughs> <laughs> Just starts that, choking niggas out of nowhere. Oh, we and that's another scary thing. I I don't know if they'll ever come face to face at all, but I think. A lot of their their role players, a lot of their people are going to have to come to face of that. Us talking about Mon Mothma, Mothma kind of being in the same realm uh, that Palpatine is in. You know what I mean? Like, there's too much things that are adjacent for us not to feel something that comes out of that. And I think we'll get a lot more pressure from the Empire, especially after all of everything that's going down um, at the end of episode 12. So it's 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 going to go down next season for sure. No, nah, I, I totally agree. And it, 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 I think that the post credit scene recontextualizes the Death Star again. Like Tony Gilroy already did it with Rogue One. Like we finally felt the fear and the destruction, the pure, the pure destruction that could be that could be, you know, within the Death Star. We saw like what it's truly capable of, because let's just be honest, the first Star Wars movie as influential as it is like when you look back at the effects and you just see like the laser pop out and it's just like this random explosion, <laughs> it doesn't really hit, you know, right. at, this, at this day and age. We don't really we don't really get a sense of its pure destructive force. But Rogue One, when they did the test run, you Ooh. know, on that planet on Jeddah, I think it was, yep. and you saw what it was really capable of with today's technology. It's like, oh, my God, this is this is frightening. This is this is the atom bomb of the Star Wars universe. That's what the equivalent is. And so it recontextualizes it again for me here because. After everything we've done here, after all the evil we've seen, all the fucked up shit that we've seen occur from the stuff on Aldani to the prison and we just realize like the ISB and what they're doing, mm-hmm. they still got this massive ass space station in the sky that is a literal planet killer. Like it will wipe out millions if not billions of lives at at the stroke of a button that gets pressed. Wow. And that's that's fucking terrifying and dark that we haven't even confronted the worst shit yet. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that's this is weird for me to say, but I've been thinking about this and watching Andor because you talk about like the lead in, like what it'll be like to watch Andor and then Rogue One and then A New Hope. Mm-hmm. Man, I I would not be against like Tony Gilroy remaking A New Hope, like in 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 today's. It'll never happen. They'll never do it. But I'd be there for like, it if we could maybe tell like an adjacent storyline mm-hmm. or something like that's happening time? alongside yeah. the events at the same time. Mm-hmm. Cause I just want to see, I want to see it get to that level, I you know, too. cause his storytelling and what he's been threading here over the course of like all of this stuff that's preceded what we saw in the very first star Wars movie. I mean, dude, it, it's just opening up the world building is just, it's on a different level. And I just, I just can't wait for season two. It can't get here fast enough. We'll have to wait two years for it, but I think it'll be well worth the wait if season one is any indication, but those all, all are all of our thoughts on season one of Andor. If you've checked out the star Wars original series, hit us up and let us know what you think. And if you haven't, please do yourself a favor and go watch it right now. All episodes are currently streaming on Disney plus. And with that being said, we're going to transition and review one more thing this week before we go. And we got to talk about a video game, a massive video game at that, the brand new God of war Ragnarok 
which was recently just released, and the game is the sequel to the 2018 God of War, also developed by Santa Monica Studios and published by Sony Interactive Entertainment. God of War Ragnarok is one of the most anticipated games of the year, coming off of the heels of 2018, which revitalized and reconstructed the franchise in a way that nobody really anticipated. I remember when that game was first announced, I think it was 2016 at that year's E3 convention. And we saw what they were trying and attempting to do, taking Kratos as a character from Greek mythology and transitioning to Norse mythology. I mean, everybody was so excited. And then the game comes out in 2018 and it's, it's pretty much a masterpiece. It's an incredible, incredible game. One of the, the best achievements I think we've ever seen in gaming. Last year or a couple of years ago, I think readers of IGN um, or voters of IGN voted it as like the, the greatest game ever made. Um, I, hey, I, I can't argue against that. It, it, it really is an achievement. It's really it's really phenomenal. So coming into God of War Ragnarok, Santa Monica had tall, tall, a tall <laughs> order to, to fill big, big shoes, massive shoes to fill to create a game that could successfully follow up something that was so critically acclaimed and so loved by audience goers, but I know we both got a chance to play God of War Ragnarok. We both have beaten it, at least the mainline story at this point, um, and, and we got our hands on it, man. I just want to, I want to get your thoughts on God of War Ragnarok. You know, how, how does it, how does this, how does it stack up to the 2018 version for you, and what did you overall think about the gameplay, the story, just everything that occurred in this brand new edition? I was so excited for this game. I beat a God of War month <laughs> leading up to this. I mean, God of War 1, 2, 3, and 4 <laughs> leading up to this game. Um, wow. I I just I had no idea how to come into this game and not put all of my expectations on it, not be because because it's, it's one thing to be excited and it's one thing to be, you got to be reasonably excited with video games sometimes you know because it's 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 so it's such scary waters to tread a lot of sequels don't work in video games a lot of i don't know a lot of stuff just doesn't work santa monica studios man they have this level i think of understanding and and i think carefulness when it comes to god of war now that I think they just they get it and, and and they're having such a good time. You can tell coming up with just all of these things that are adjacent to Norse mythology that just it just constantly works like the the story with Kratos being outside of his own realm is it just works like it's just they just know how to tell it. They just know how to tell it. That's it. They they know how to tell the story. And this game is beautiful. It's moving. It's still about a father trying to get to know, getting trying to get to know his son, who he doesn't even completely understand. His son. I was just talking about Strange World. Lokish, there's a little bit of Strange World and God of War. A little bit of God of War, Strange World. What it looks like to put your expectations on your son. What it looks like for him not to be like you, but not only that, but for him to have a mother that you don't even know anything about, <laughs> like mm -hmm. that you thought you did. You thought you knew his mother. But now their son is learning that those pieces of himself and you can't help him with those pieces. What it means to be disconnected from that, what it means to. I don't know, man, it's just it's just very carefully crafted. And as a as a as still, you know, a young black man who who has always kind of been disconnected <laughs> from his father in a lot of the same ways. It's just really cool. 
it's just really cool to get that in video game form and you just and, and add layers to it. That's the base. You telling me it's that plus it has good combat plus the music is fucking fire plus everyone hates the same characters that I hate. Everyone loves the same <laughs> characters that I love plus seeing I don't know really cool shit transpire on screen and for you to have predictions of things that's going to happen and for, the, for some of them not to come true some of them I don't know. It's something about this game that just makes sense and that just it, it resonates with me so much of being a a, a cool experience cuz We've just never. I love the first three God of Wars, bro. They're not touching four and five. They're not touching. Them. I, I know it's, it's, it's a different it's league. A different league. I just played them all back to back to back. It's a different league. It's a different game. They matured it. They and, and what's crazy, hey, bro. God of War three is crazy when it comes. It's like a different kind of maturity, though. It's like I'm going to fuck your wife and take your daughter away from you. Kind of like I was like, God damn, you. I'm out here having sex with Aphrodite after just talking to her husband on the other Kratos side of the. That boy. dude is crazy, bro. But like, <laughs> you know, you come into the. It's a different kind of maturity. It's like I am telling not only a story, but I want people to feel this. And I think God of War Ragnarok is is another example off the backs of four, which is just as tremendous. It's like I want y'all to feel this video game that we're making. I want y'all to feel this thing that we're making. And 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 I do. I I feel it completely, man. I, it, it really is amazing. It's another finely crafted adventure that one of the best I've ever played. It's thrilling. Um, the, I, I I will give the smallest nitpick in the world for this game. The ending is too easy. It's too easy. I, most people probably ran through this ending. Was like, damn, that's it. <laughs> like I, I thought, yeah, right. I thought that would be a little bit harder kind of type thing, but. In, in a game that is sto- so story-driven, I couldn't be, like, super bad. You know what I mean? I'm not out here playing Elden Ring, which, in talking about Elden Ring, which is also up for Game of the Year, along with this game, uh, uh, I, can't, I can't see Elden Ring beating it. And the reason is because the attachment to the characters in this game. Where Elden Ring falls short is the lore a little. Like, I love theorizing the lore, but God of War, you feel it. You have to guess it in Elden Ring. You have to. I love having to come up with theories and think about what's happening in Elden Ring. But this game, you get it. You just know what's going on. And, and I think for that uh, uh, alone, I think it's going to get Game of the Year again. I really do. I uh, I think they they're going to get a two P. I don't see I don't see Elden Ring taking it. Um, but yeah, man, this game is beautiful. You need to play it. It don't matter what difficulty you play it on. I'm about to go back and platinum this thing. I just have to for my sanity. <laughs> Um, but it, it really is great. I, I really do love it as, again, one of the one of the best video games I've ever played. Man, I, I don't play as many games as, as you do lately, but when a God of War game comes out, I make it a point to stop what I'm doing. And this will get my entire focus because I have also, you know, been with this franchise since it premiered back in 2005. Jeez. And so now we've been living with the character of Kratos and this mythology for 17 years now and Santa Monica has been behind all these iterations played all the first the first games the main trilogy and of course leading into these most two recent ones which focused on the Norse mythology I mean God of War 2018 and now Ragnarok I think for me represent two games in particular that just push the medium to a level that they have not experienced just yet video games are constantly evolving each and every year they're getting even more and more impressive and these past five or six or seven years have just taken things to a new height and god of war is largely responsible for that for what you can achieve and what you can showcase from a storytelling and narrative perspective i mean i would put this up against any modern television show any modern movie and say 
this story is just as satisfying and just as good as anything happening on the big and small screen right now. Yep. The writing, the acting, the performances are just so fucking top notch across the board. And the key difference maker with any video game, but really notab- noticeably with these with these games, the God of War games, is how much time you're spending with these characters. Mm-hmm. The fact that you are putting in 25, 30, 35, 40 hours living with these characters on a day-to-day basis, which there's no other medium that can achieve that. Even with the TV series long form, like you'll probably at best get 10 hours every couple of years with these people, but we're, we're in such a concentrated amount of time with the God of War Ragnarok game right now. I mean, you really become invested in the story and everything that they did here in paying off all of the threads that they set up in the last one and, and bleeding it over into this one was just so magnificently done. The relationship between Kratos and his son Atreus is just so beautiful. You can see the natural evolution of what occurs there. It's not the same relationship from the first one. It makes sense where they are now Mm -hmm. compared to where they were just a few years ago because this does take place three years after that first one. We see more gods, which is what you always want to see in these games. You You get a lot of those Norse gods without getting into too many details that you would expect to see. The boss battles here are fucking insane and incredible, and I love that they also added a lot of new mini bosses in this one because mm-hmm. the first one had some really big boss battles along the way but i felt like there was a large gap in terms of just like the play time in between mm-hmm. one boss to the next mm-hmm. one there were a lot of mini bosses here that presented you know their own challenges and their own unique set of skills and, and, and things that you had to overcome and the and the variety in the villains and the creatures that you had to that you had to kill and destroy in this game is also significantly larger than yeah. the first game. So I never found myself bored with enemies. I definitely found myself overwhelmed at times, like, Jesus fucking Christ, how am I going to get past <laughs> so-and-so? But the variety here is so much larger, so you can tell that they really kind of went back to the drawing board to not only build on what they had, but to really blow this out and make it even bigger. And one noticeable choice that they made that they've talked about in the development of this game is the fact that they strongly consider making this three games, you know, Ooh. doing another trilogy like they did with the first one, which they could have done. There's enough there, but they decided to really do a duology and wrap it up this time around, which I think was actually the smart thing to do because the scale and scope of this story in this game is so fucking huge. And I know I haven't even scratched the surface. I've played like 26 hours and I want to put it, put in like another 20, 26 hours mm-hmm. to really do all the side stuff to see everything that's out there. There's so many things here. There's so much to do. It's just, it's really masterful. I think what they achieved with this, with this new Ragnarok game, man, it's it's really crazy. I was gonna ask you about the game of the year predicament, so you already talked about that. What the only other question I would ask you: Do you think that this actually supplants and overtakes the first one? I think again, that first one is so beloved, and there is a little bit of a, for me at least, I still haven't made up my mind completely. It probably is better than the first one, but I think. I think that surprise element with 2018, you can't replicate that. Yeah. Like, there, there's no replicating like the fact that that came out of nowhere and it was as good as it was. And as you said, and I agree with this, the sentiment is such a significant leap from that first trilogy. Like, it's it's night and day, really. They are really mm-hmm. different games. This one, though the scale and the scope is expanded, there's more characters and it wraps everything up. I mean, if you had to put the two against each other, which, you know, might be a little bit silly because they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. But if you had to put them up against each other, do you think that this one actually succeeds and overtakes the first one as being the better game? Oh, man. What a hard question because they're both, in my mind, they're both 10 out of 10s. Um, it is something about that first one, learning about Loki, learning about 
all of that that was just like like i remember i was like oh like i actually yelled at the screen <laughs> when that happened because i just wasn't ready um man i think i think there might be certain elements of both that really do just work better in other games versus the other like i think I think in in the, in this one in particular, the side stuff is incredible. There's a there's so much to do. I think the Valkyries are missing a little bit <laughs> in this one, but the, the we got berserkers yeah. and berserkers are hard as hell in this one. Um, and and it's it's also so, of course the theatrics got better in this one. Like it just is what it is. Like the visuals and the it's crazy. But the first one was more jarring most of the time. The first time that you fight Balder is like, what the fuck is going on here? Who is this guy? Who is I I yeah. I think the first one has story elements, I would say, that just caught me off guard a little bit more. Even the stuff with Freya yeah. by the end of the game. There's just a little bit more, I think, in 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 four that that definitely subverted my expectations. Now and I was coming into this one a little bit ready for that stuff. And I think for that, it's it's yeah. I I really can't. It's hard for me to choose. Like I really do think it depends on your taste of game and what you want out of a game. Um, because yeah, yeah, it's hard. I I don't think I can choose right now, bro. I'm gonna have to sit on it a little <laughs> bit longer. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have to sit with it. No, I I I completely get that. It's it's Godfather one and two. You know, it's they're, they're serving two completely different functions, but they are both exactly of just masterful quality. But I, I you know, for me, yeah, it, it it depends on the angle you're looking at it from. Mm-hmm. I think from a technical level, this one improves everything in the first for sure. one for me. I mean, the fight mechanics, the gameplay, mm-hmm. the pacing, the the use of the weapons. I mean, the blades feel blades feel amazing. so much better in this game. Blades are so much they better feel in this game. So yep. they feel so good. The new weapon that's introduced, which I won't spoil, yep. didn't see that coming, but that was great. Oh, the moment. Um, oh, my God. So beautiful. Yes. Oh, just just great mm-hmm. what they did there. And even, you know, outside of that, from a story perspective, the one thing that I did like in this game better than the first game, which is a large part of it, is the relationship between Kratos and Atreus. In that first game, I'm not going to lie, Atreus annoyed the fuck out of me a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was younger you know, more inexperienced. This one is an older version, of course. They're closer. It's a different relationship. And so I do think that that succeeds better in Ragnarok than it does in 2018. But 2018, as you said, man, there's so much. It, it was it was just a new world. Mm-hmm. You just didn't know what was going to come around the corner. Like you said, Balder, Freya, the low-key stuff, the Thor reveal at the end, mm-hmm. the mentions of Odin, just the promise of what was to come. It's like, it was just bomb after bomb after bomb. Like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, it felt... It felt just so new and so different, which it was at that time. This one is doing something different. It's trying to wrap up the story. And so it's Infinity War and Endgame. You know, it's that type of it's that type of comparison. You know, I think both are, like you said, they're both 10 out of 10s. You know, it's just like, what are you in the mood for? And what are, where are you coming at it from in terms of like what your preference is? But that they, they just did an absolutely phenomenal knockout job with this game. And yeah, as you said, if you play video games, if you got a PS4, PS5, you got you got to get your hands now. on this one because it's really it's really a transcendent experience. And I like I said earlier, it, it pushes the medium forward and just really showcases what's possible. So those are our thoughts on God of War Ragnarok. If you've played this game, hit us up and let us know what you think about it. And with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have for this episode of Two Black Nerds. No news for this week because we had a lot to cover, a lot to review. But we will, of course, be back next week because we got to do something very special. We have to rank 
every movie and TV series from Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's right, with the recent release of Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which concludes Phase 4, and the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, which we talked about earlier, which apparently serves as sort of the epilogue for Phase 4. We have now had a complete phase of projects from the MCU, so we're going to spend all of next week's episode ranking our projects from worst to best. We got eight TV shows, seven movies, two specials, and a series of animated shorts to rank. Wow. So it's going to be an interesting episode. And we're also going to give out some awards for all of the best things that have occurred in Phase 4 of the MCU. So definitely a lot to look forward to. But until then, we will see y'all next time. Yes, sir. We are Audi 5000. Please check out our Two Black Panthers Forever collection, twoblacknerds.com. This is the year 2020 Two Black Nerds. Remember, always bet on black. Appreciate y'all. Love y'all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Two Black Nerds. Where we're too black, too nerdy, and we out, y'all. Peace.